John, I have a question for you. When you were perhaps younger uh, or just generally in the days before, did you have any strong corporate allegiances? So what got me thinking about this was, obviously, you know, I have a strong affinity for Apple, even though sometimes it may not sound like it. But I was thinking, you know, there was a time when I felt probably as strongly in favor of BMW as I do about Apple, which now sounds bananas, but there was a time when I was extremely enthusiastic about BMW. You know, Marco and I flew halfway across the planet in order to visit more BMW. Um, and and I, I was also thinking about like when I was a kid, I had very little actual possessions, but a strong affinity for Sony stuff. And, you know, we've all talked about, especially us old men, about how Sony used to be great, blah, blah, blah. And actually, coincidentally, we're going to be talking about Sony again later. But I was curious for both of you, but particularly, John, were there any other corporations that you felt like you did or perhaps still do have a really strong, like, affinity for? Sure. And it's, I mean, like, just like with you and BMW and all the things we're talking about, it comes down to the products, like unlike sports teams, which like you're born into, right? Or religion <laughs> or whatever, like, um, or just ge geography. Um, for, for like tech products or even any kind of products, it's based uh, or companies, it's based on the products they put out. So I also had an affinity for Sony stuff that was based on both the Walkman, which was a new piece yep, of yep. technology when I was a kid, and that really, mm -hmm. you know, knocked my socks off. And a little bit later, uh, the Trinitron display, because I always like good display technology, and the Trinitron only curved in one direction instead of two, and that's, you know, 50% to being entirely flat. And then, of course, Apple used Trinitron monitors, so there was a connection there. Nintendo, why? Oh, the NES. The NES was another thing that came out in my day, right? Because of the NES, I became... Uh, devoted to Nintendo and the games they put out, you know, Legend of Zelda and Mario that made me devoted to Nintendo. So every time Nintendo did a thing, I was into it. Um, th those are probably the big ones. Maybe you could say like Ferrari and Porsche, but like I only saw pictures of those things. So, you know, who really <laughs> knows what they're actually like? Um, but yeah, I think it's a, the same amount of, uh, I wouldn't call it corporate allegiance. I would call it um, identifying and being interested in the output of companies that were doing things that I found cool. What about OXO? Like, isn't a lot of your kitchen stuff OXO? Yeah. I mean, like that's, I, I had don't, it's not quite the same thing as those other companies because a lot of OXO stuff is hit or miss, but they're in my group of brands that I trust. Like all clad is another one. Like you kind of know what you're getting with them. I bought enough of their products that I have some confidence in what they're going to give, but the those things don't go into the top tiers because it's i feel like their taste is not entirely aligned with mine or not not aligned with mine as much as say a nintendo or an apple is so i really have to just sort of pick and choose from those companies so yeah i like them but sometimes the things they make don't agree with my taste that's fair Marco, other than your incorrect opinions about Sega, uh, what, what, anything for you? <laughs> I was just thinking about Sega when you were in was and all that. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, like when I was when I was young, like you know, we didn't have a lot of money, and I didn't have like the the breadth of knowledge or um, product availability to me or internet searching. So like, I only knew what we had, and all we had, like you know, we'd get like one of everything. So like, you know, we'd have one tv one vcr you know I, we had one game system the sega genesis for most of my childhood so like it wasn't it it wouldn't so, wouldn't be so much like an allegiance as like this is just the only one that we have so it's the only one that i have any experience with. <laughs> yeah 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 
See, I don't know. I mean, like we had Toyota cars because we bought them and drove them forever. Oh yeah, um, I should have listed Honda, which was a oh, late true. in life thing. Mm. The first Honda that my family had was, I think I was like a teenager by then, but obviously very quickly I, I developed an affinity for that brand, and this is the only car I've ever bought. It's just a series of Hondas, so <laughs> put that in the loyalty column for sure. It's funny to me that early on, before I put something to the order of ten dollars or $15,000 worth of repairs into my 3 Series, I would have said early on that, you know, money notwithstanding, because it's a big issue with a BMW, I would probably drive BMWs forever more. Because when my 335 worked, holy crap, that was a great car. It really, really, really was. Um, but the problem is it never worked. And <laughs> coincidentally, I, I ran out to do some takeout for dinner. Um, and and when I was out, I noticed uh, coming, you know, coming out onto the road I was driving on, you know, so perpendicular to me. Uh, was one of the new either three or four series with the humongous, ridiculous kidneys that we had talked about, I don't know, many shows ago ago now. And I, that might be the first time I've seen them in person, and they are uglier in person than <laughs> I think they are on paper. And that is saying something because they are truly awful on paper. That's amazing. <laughs> it's so bad. So yeah, just you know, fast forward a couple of years, and, and genuinely, I mean, I could not say enough good things about the trip that me, Aaron, Marco, and Tiff went on and, and about, you know, going to BMW Welt and going to do European delivery and taking this, you know, it'd be even just being a passenger in Marco's ridiculous BMW and taking it around the Nürburgring on like April 4th or something when there was snow on the sides of the road. Like everything about that trip really on paper was kind of dumb and wrong and bad, but I loved it. I loved every moment of it. And and to go from that to me saying today, it is unlikely that I would ever really even strongly consider a BMW again is surprising. And and I feel similarly, although not exactly the same with Sony, you know, like I, I loved Sony so much as a kid. And now I'm just like, eh, it's a thing. Maybe I'd get a camera sometime, maybe. And again, we'll be talking about this later, but um, I don't know. It's just wild to me how, how such a strong allegiance can just evaporate into thin air like that. Just wait until Declan wants a PlayStation. <laughs> I think a lot of it was like, you know, in in that era of like, you know, 80s, 90s, like that, the time that we grew up, uh, well, the Casey and I grew up, <laughs> <laughs> Zing. Um, it, things were a lot less based on software and, and ecosystems and services and everything. And they were a lot more just like, which of these like consumer electronic companies can make really nice hardware and the hardware was could be really delightful and really well made and it was because there there was not much software dependence at the time on um, for almost any category of device i think more companies were able to become entrants in those fields so like you had more companies being able to make really good TVs and really good VCRs and really good game systems and everything and and now i feel like not only do we use fewer things, like even back then, you might have had, you know, you might have had like a, an early computer from whoever made that. Um, you you definitely would have had like, you know, TV, VCR, um, later on DVD player. Um, you would have had uh, game systems, at least one usually growing up. And you also would have had things like, you know, a Discman, as, as we said, or, or a Walkman. Maybe later in the later, like in the late 90s, you would might have might have had like a PDA or something like you would have had more things. Whereas now, a lot of those hardware products are not necessary anymore. Like now it, it's the, the, to make to get hardware that we actually need or want to use. 
it it basically has to be like either a phone or a computer, and like that's about <laughs> it. And not a lot of people are able to make competitive phones or computers these days because they're so complex and so reliant on software and ecosystems. Yeah. And so like you don't so it's harder for somebody like a Sony, for example. Sony has always been miserably bad at software, uh, but really pretty good at the hardware side. Um, and now Sony like the direction the world has moved with the exception of things like the camera division, but like the rest of Sony, you know, it's the world has moved in places that Sony mostly can't do very well. Like now, like, you know, Sony does not have a PC or mobile operating system. They don't make most of the hardware that would be in a PC or mobile, with the exception of they do make a ton of the camera sensors, uh, which is pretty good. <laughs> that's a pretty good business to be in. The, the, the camera modules on smartphones, that, that's a pretty good business. Um, but like, I feel like there's less room for somebody like, like 90s Sony of like, just make a really nice VCR. Like there's less room for that in what we use today because what we use today requires massive investments and massive established ecosystems in areas Sony has not ever been really able to do. So I, I, I do kind of miss that. Like, like a couple of years back, um, I got this little tiny Sony audio recorder and it was about the size of an iPod shuffle. And it was this full-blown audio recorder. It was so delightful. And I used it like three or four times maybe. And I, I just haven't used it. And I looked for it the other day and I couldn't find it. But like it was so delightful to have this thing and, and hold it in my hands. It's like this is a modern Sony device that had, you know, it looked and it looked just like an old Sony device. It, you know, this black plastic casing, really well made, big buttons, the nice big record button, nice big display. It had, it had like a like a uh, black and white OLED for the displays, so it looked really nice. Like it was a beautiful little device, but I just don't have a ton of use for this kind of thing anymore. Because so often, like you know, either our phones can do that, and we don't need to do it anymore, or you know, things about things that are about physical media, we almost never need anymore. Um, so I don't know. It it seems like there's a, there's been whole massive categories of things that we could become big fans of, or really you know respect certain companies for. And that whole category doesn't really exist anymore, or it only exists in very specialized areas and like only pros in a certain area need it. Speaking of outdated stuff, TiVo, another brand that I had tremendous oh, loyalty yeah. for mm. until the bad times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we should start with some follow-up and we have some neutral follow-up. I'm sorry if this is not your cup of tea. This is why chapters exist. Thank you, Germany. Uh, to begin, somebody on Twitter found that there were official renders of the Model S and Model X uh, interiors with a traditional round, barbarically ancient and yet so delightful steering wheel. And I was extremely pleased to see this and I hope it's a thing. I don't know if it's renders. It might be a photo. Presumably, oh, it's fair, for fair. the the countries that uh, where it's illegal to to have the <laughs> the steering yoke, <laughs> the non wheel wheel. Apparently, that's against certain laws in certain places. So they're probably going to have to make a round wheel anyway. And this was an official picture on their site. So there it is. It's a wheel. Um, and if I would say because Tesla makes that part, it would be easier for people to buy that aftermarket. But then I remember that Tesla doesn't exactly make it easy to buy parts. Period. <laughs> yeah, That's my true. my best guess is that if they don't enable that wheel option for everybody, you know, up front, I think they will probably enable it at some point, like maybe within the next year. I think enough people will want it and they'll lose enough sales to not having it that they'll probably relent and start offering that as an option. But I could be wrong. I mean, 
They never offered functional door handles. Yeah, exactly. They didn't fix those after all those years, even this gen. Um, <laughs> speaking of uh, controls, uh, at least one person on Twitter said that the touch controls on the wheel are supposedly force touch, like you actually have to press them hard. So um, I speculated about that last show. I'm not sure where this information is coming from. That would make a little bit more sense than them being capacitive, but it doesn't make any sense to me why they are uh, apparently on a completely smooth featureless service without any kind of outline or indent or bulge to indicate where the things are. Yeah, like if I if I want to like dust off my steering wheel, am I going to accidentally honk the horn? <laughs> I mean, not not unless you press. But the the reason I think it's weird that it's just a smooth surface is you'll just have to memorize which parts of the smooth surface to press. It's like the Apple TV remote all over again, right? Um, and if you don't know exactly where it is and you just put your finger onto this completely smooth surface and you press real hard and, and your blinker doesn't turn on, then you just move your thumb like a millimeter and press and move your thumb a millimeter and press. Then you look down to see the little glowing symbol. Oh, that's where it is. Like this is just, there is no scenario in which uh, a smooth surface with places on it that you can press is better than a stock for turn signals. And I don't understand, I understand why they're doing this, but at least supposedly they're not capacitive, which would be the real worst case. You know, as a Model S driver for like the last six years or whatever it's been, I've never once thought this car has too many physical controls. <laughs> like I've always thought it had like either exactly the right amount or slightly too few, but very close to the right amount. Like I'm very happy with the physical controls with what is physical and what is on the touchscreen. I'm very happy with that overall. And so for them to go mess with it, I'm again, this might be really cool, but I um, I'm wary, especially because of this next point. Right, so Elon tweeted, no more stalks. The car will guess drive direction based on what obstacles it sees, context, and the navigation map. You can override on the touchscreen. So let me back up a half step. So in order to control, if you're going in forward or reverse, that's a stalk on the Model S, right, Marco, the way it is today? Uh -huh, right side, yep. And, you know, that's the way it is on some, like, column-shifted, you know, traditional cars. But apparently the Model S and the Model X will just figure it out by magic and that's how it's going to work or if you don't trust it you can use the touchscreen all right so here's the thing i have a group chat with a couple of friends of mine that we talk nominally about cars pretty much all day every day and it's not john and marco surprisingly uh but anyways one of the things we were talking about just earlier today is you know whether or not it's appropriate for cars to be putting so much stuff behind a touchscreen and because we're all old, we, of course, say, no, not, not everything should be back there. And, you know, I can make arguments about what could and could not be in a touchscreen. So, for example, Aaron, on Aaron's Volvo, to adjust the temperature, that's on the touchscreen. Now, they do it in the most convenient, most reasonable way possible, but I would still prefer to have a little dial that you could, that you could spin or what have you. To put gear selection on the touchscreen, that is well, either I'm extremely old, which I guess is true, or that is the most preposterous, ridiculous, <laughs> like, you want to talk about courage, that's freaking courage. Like, come on. No, just no. Well, it's not It's not that it's putting it on the touchscreen, because if that's what we were talking about, that would be one thing, and we can have that conversation. But as you just read, the key part of this is, and it's a lot like the uh, the driver assistance things that the car does for you to try to help you drive, or the, you know, the autopilot or whatever, is that it chooses for you. Like, so if it was on a touchscreen, no. it would be like, well, you must you must go into drive before you can drive. But in this car, according to Elon's description, no, you don't have to go to the touchscreen and press drive. You just need to get into the car 
And the car will pick, based on, you know, context clues, whether you want to go forward or backwards. Now, if the car has made the wrong choice, of course, you can use the touchscreen to change the gear. But the thing is, you don't have to use the touchscreen if the car guessed right. And this is exactly like the autopilot, uh, you know, anti-pattern where if the car guesses right enough, if autopilot is good enough to keep you in the lane 99.9% of the time, it will form a habit where you just get in your car and press the accelerator pedal. Because, hey, the car just picks for you. I don't have to steer when I'm in the lane because the thing stays in the lane for me, except for that one time it doesn't and then I die. Well, you're <laughs> supposed to be ready to take over at any second if you depart from the lane. Well, you're always supposed to check the touchscreen to see if it's in the right gear. It says right here in the manual, oh yeah, we'll pick the right gear for you. But if we pick the wrong one, just use the touchscreen. But it's training you not to do that. So, I mean, this is less, much less dangerous because what's going to happen is people are going to get in fender benders, right? Where they're just going to assume the car has correctly picked forward or reverse or whichever gear they think it's supposed to be. And they're going to hit the accelerator and bump into a wall, bump into a cone, bump into a tree, whatever it is they're going to bump into. If the car guesses incorrectly, the car will have long since trained you to never bother overriding it because it guesses right almost every single time. So this is another example of a non-human centered feature. It's not, you know, the touchscreen... Having the gear selector on the touchscreen, that's one thing. And I think that's an interesting evolution of gear selection because in, in, the, in the olden days, uh, Casey mentioned column shifting, uh, there was a physical connection between either the column or a big lever to trigger something in your, trans, in your automatic transmission to go into the right gear, setting aside manuals for a second, right? And over the years, as transmissions have gotten more and more complicated, they've kept in a skeuomorphic way, again, a truly skeuomorphic way, a big giant lever in a car that you can move from P R N D L, you know, like just a huge lever as if you're still moving mechanically something inside the transmission. When in reality, over the past, you know, the recent several years, what you're actually doing is moving a giant electronic switch that's telling the transmission to change gears. More recently, in like the past couple car generations, lots of car manufacturers have switched from having a gigantic handle that takes up the entire center console to having buttons. In fact, most Hondas do this now. And, uh, and I started this, you know, maybe five seven years ago but a lot of cars have buttons for park reverse neutral including clever buttons like where reverse you pull up on the button like a window lifter and you know drive you press down to try to you know sort of make it have make it make it have more physical sense about whether you're going forward or backwards because there's no need for a lever because all you're doing is activating a button so they had physical buttons touchscreen buttons are just an evolution of that and that's where you get into the debate we've had all the time physical buttons versus touchscreen buttons but it's still it's just a button it's a recognition of the fact that you're not actually shifting a transmission into gear by moving a lever that presses a thing that moves a physical metal gear to mesh with a different gear you know you're not doing that you're doing an electronic switch right so i think touchscreen for gear selection of all the things that you have to do it's probably not the worst sin i i would challenge people to make what people call a k-turn but i always call a three-point turn while trying to use a touchscreen to change gears but then again i'm a stick shift driver i don't have to look at anything when i make a k-turn because <laughs> it, everything is at hand and i never have to look anywhere but i know lots of people have to grab their thing and look at their dashboard indicator to see that they're going from d into r and they haven't actually accidentally switched into n or low gear or whatever like people do that and a touchscreen i feel like is a slight downgrade there but that's an entirely separate matter that we can debate. I think what's not debatable is if this works how Elon says it does, and if it is remotely good at guessing, it will train people not to bother looking at the touchscreen and just assume the car is guessed correctly, and then they're just going to hit their bumpers into things. Yeah, I think that's that's the most likely outcome here. Because like, 
when, when my car tries to guess what I want to do, it is sometimes right. I'd say it's even often right. When my car tries to drive itself, it is often doing the correct things. But not always. It isn't 100% of the time. Also, the more things that get put on the touchscreen, the more things I don't have access to the two or three times a year I have to reboot the car while I'm driving it. Oh, God. Because Tesla can't make a reliable car computer. They can't. They, they haven't. They, so as far as I can tell, they can't. And while their computers don't need to be rebooted as often as they used to, they still do occasionally need to be rebooted occasionally while you're driving them. And today, in, in the you know, outgoing Model S, uh, you hold down you know, the, the two steering wheel, little scroll wheel things for a little while, and, and the computer reboots. Today, when you reboot the computer, you can do so while driving. And the only things that you lose access to that really matter a lot are climate control and turn signals. Everything else continues to work just fine with those computers off and rebooting. And they take a good probably 90 seconds it like it takes a while for them to reboot it's not it's not like an instant thing Um, the fact that the turn signals are connected to the computer is terrible because those are an important driver thing and there is no reason they need to be connected to the computer yeah and to be clear i'm actually not entirely sure that they don't function but you you don't have any indication that they're functioning they might still be on the outside i'm not sure um and, and in fact there was actually just today i think or yesterday there was a recall announced that basically like the the NISTHA, whatever it is, uh, group, the organization from the government. NHTSA, National Highway Traffic and Safety Organization. So I learned from working at uh, Car Talk from my first job. There we go. Yes. So anyway, so the, the asthma group forced Tesla to recall something, some massive number of cars because the like there's some flaw in some number of cars they shipped where the computers will frequently die and need to be like upgraded or replaced or whatever. And it's such a it's such a safety hazard when the computer dies because I think of control of turn signals and stuff like that and climate control, which you can imagine like if, if you're relying on like the defroster, for instance, that's that's kind of a big deal. Um, so right now, already, even even with like the latest Model S with the latest software, as of like two months ago, that ca- that car still needs to reboot its computer while driving at least once or twice a year. And so to have things move into the touchscreen, like the reverse or drive selector, that to me is scary because they're designing the car as if, well, first of all, they're designing the car as if it already drives itself 100% of the time. And that's not true and probably won't be true for at least another few years, if probably not more, you know. (laughs) Um, So it's already not driving itself full time. So you need to drive it yourself manually quite often, (laughs) most of the time, I'd, I'd argue. And then also to put something as critical as the drive mode on the touchscreen, which makes it so that you can't then operate that during these critical times when you have to reboot the car computer. That is scary to me. And I, and I just think like the one time it guesses wrong is going to make it not worth it. Yep. Like that, that one time, if, I mean, you're lucky if you just bump some, some bumper or you, you know, back into your garage door or something, you're lucky if that's all that gets done. You know, it, you could, you could hit somebody, you could hit a pet, you could, you could hit a kid like that. It could be way worse than just bumping someone's fender. And like to have the car go, to have any part of that be unreliable is so dangerous and, and so bad that it doesn't seem worth it to have the car try to guess based on conditions that are not going to be 100% of the time correct. 
I mean, I feel the argument is exactly the argument they keep making for self-driving, the arg- and, and, which has not held for their self-driving and probably won't hold for this, which is people guess wrong sometimes too. And as long as the computer can guess right more often than the computer does, uh, more often than uh, people do, then it's a win for the computer, right? So we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be better than people. And, you know, as we know, people do occasionally go in the wrong gear and bump into somebody and run over a pet or a kid, right? That happens, right? So they're just trying to beat humans. Um, but I don't particularly like that because... I am not an amorphous smear of statistical human being. I'm one specific <laughs> human being. So if I am the person who is constantly going into reverse and running over my dog, I love this feature because it's going to improve my average. But if I'm someone who has never selected the wrong gear, this is going to decrease my average. So individuals buy cars, not just humans. And I know, you know, writ large, like there's the effect on society. As long as we're better than the average, if we put the Tesla into everyone's hands somehow because they all get 70 grand. Uh, then we will be increasing safety. But I don't think, based on their, you know, they said the same thing about self-driving, we don't have to be perfect, we just have to be better than humans, and we think we are, but, and and even if they are, like, it's the it's the agency problem of, like, well, uh, you would have saved this bad driver, but you killed this good driver. Or even just the things we've talked about is, like, when when you make a mistake, you feel like, well, it's on me. Like, I'm I drove badly, and I got into an accident, my fault, right? Uh, but when the car makes a mistake, people feel powerless because they're like, well, I didn't even have a choice. The car decided to do this and it made the wrong choice and got into an accident. And now I'm angry about it. So anyway, I don't want to get into the self-driving stuff again, but <laughs> I feel like this is the same category of stuff. Like we could ask, as we do with a lot of Apple products, what problem were they trying to solve with this? And I think the answer would be, well, people pick the wrong gear sometimes too. So we're just trying to be better than that. Uh, I think one of the things that Model 3 owners hate the most is <laughs> when one of us says, you can't adjust the cruise control with the steering wheel. Uh, um, I'm sorry. Which, this was my no, fault. And I knew this too, because we've been yelled at many times before about this, and I knew this, and I didn't think to correct you at the time, and we got corrections. So yes, yeah. all three of us are aware I, that you I, can I had use... forgotten. <laughs> I, I wasn't aware, because I've never driven a Model 3, and if I had, I would have corrected Marco in real time. I let everyone down, I'm sorry. What what I think has happened? So I, what I think happened was the very first version of the Model Three release, like with its first software version, I think didn't support this. And then I think they they fairly quickly added it in a software update because everyone wanted it. Um, and I just forgotten about that. So sorry, you actually can adjust the cruise control speed from the steering wheel, little jog dial thing uh, on the Model Three. All right, moving on. Uh, we were uh, lamenting and laughing about the um, Siri announcements of messages. And did you know you could reply? Uh, And Enrico Sassatio writes, you can adjust announce messages with Siri to announce messages from favorites only so that messages from your bank, for example, won't be announced. And this is somewhere in settings in messages, I believe, um, where you can switch this. And it it gives you the options of announce messages from favorites, recents, contacts, or everyone, which I may have known at one point, but certainly forgot. So that was a good tip. Uh, Hey, how do you tell the uh, Apple tube to stop talking to you, John? Yeah, my story from last week about how I couldn't get Siri to disengage with me and uh, it kept interacting and I couldn't uh, get it to stop was mostly an example of uh, the things I know how to do not working. Like I was trying all the things that I knew. Uh, lots of people wrote in to tell me the things that they use that do work. These are all the things that I were trying. I was trying that were failing. Um, some suggestions where you can say, go away goodbye, shut up, I think stop also works. There's all sorts of things that you can say after hailing your dingus to make it stop doing what it's doing. What was novel about the situation was that none of those things were working. 
And in fact, they would they would be interpreted as either my failure to answer whatever query I was being engaged on or like an, an affirmative answer to for a next step. And it was just like, I just wanted to unplug the thing. So, but for people, I reason I put this in there for people who don't know, most voice assistant cylinder thingies have a bunch of things that you can say to it to make it stop whatever interaction you're in the middle of. Um, so if you don't know that, pick one and go with it. I would suggest not picking an angry one. Don't pick shut up. Don't pick <laughs> F off. There's lots of things you can say to them that will work, but that's not nice. And I know it's an inanimate object and it doesn't matter, but in general, being angry at inanimate objects doesn't make you feel better. So I would suggest saying goodbye or, I mean, stop is pretty good too. But anyway, sometimes uh, these things just are like a dog with a bone and they just want you to answer a question and they won't go away. We are sponsored this week by Away. We know travel is a bit weird these days, but you're going to travel again sometime. And when you do, Away offers a range of suitcases, bags, and other travel products. And they come in all different materials like polycarbonate, aluminum, and durable nylon, and a variety of colors and sizes. So whatever you need to bring with you, Away has luggage that will help make your future trip more seamless whenever that may be. All the way suitcases are super strong. They're designed to last a lifetime. They have durable exteriors that can withstand even the roughest of baggage handlers. And if any part of your suitcase breaks, Away's standout customer service team will arrange to have it fixed or replaced. And these suitcases are really thoughtfully designed. They all come with an interior organization system. This includes things like a built-in compression pad to help you pack more in, and a hidden removable laundry bag to separate your dirty clothes as you travel from your clean clothes. And they have great features on the outside, too. Like, they have four 360-degree spinner wheels, so you can roll it around nice and easily maneuver it through the airports. They have a TSA-approved combination lock. And they also can expand almost two inches, so you have the flexibility to pack even more into your trip. I always, whenever I have an expandable suitcase with me, I always leave it unexpanded on the way there and expanded on the way back. I almost always need that for some reason. They have an easy access front pocket to fit travel essentials that you need on hand, like your passport or your laptop, something like that. A hidden handle on the base of the suitcase helps you grab your bag from overhead bins or luggage carousels. I love that feature. That's a great one. And you can try these things. These are amazing. There's a 100-day trial on everything Away makes. So they actually want you to take it out on the road, live with it, travel with it, get lost with it for a 100 days. And if you decide after that it's not for you, you can return any non-personalized item for a full refund during that 100-day period. No ifs, ands, or asterisks. And they offer free shipping and returns on any order within the contiguous U.S., Europe, Canada, and Australia. So shop their selection of suitcases today at awaytravel.com slash accidentaltech. That's awaytravel.com slash accidentaltech. Thank you so much to Away for sponsoring our show. All right, so the two of you presumably got an email today from Apple about your uh, fancy, not quite Mac Mini Mac Minis. Apple thinks it takes us several weeks to find the box that this thing came in. They're like, hey, we're just emailing you just so you know, you should probably go look for like the box that this thing came in because in a few weeks, we're going to email you to tell you how to return it. It's like, how long do you think it takes me to find the box? I, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, they sent an email. So I was, I was wondering the other day, actually, when the Apple was going to ask for the DTKs back for people who don't know the, the acronym, that's the developer transition kit. It was the little Mac mini with like an iPad pro inside it that you could use to develop and test ARM Mac software before the ARM Macs had been released. Uh, and you rented it from Apple for what was it, like 500 bucks or something. Yep. 
and with the acknowledge that you were always going to have to return it. The last time they did this, uh, what did they give people? You got like a, a Pentium 4 in, a, uh, in an old cheese grater case. And then when you returned it, you got a sweetheart deal on... I think an iMac, was right? It? Or was yeah, it? like the white, the white Intel iMacs. Yeah. Um, so we were wondering, hey, when they ask for these DTKs back, what are we going to get in return? And the answer is, in Apple's not exactly clear language, is you'll receive a one-time use code for $200 to use towards the purchase of a Mac with M1. Now, all right, so $200, that's clear. Can you only buy an M1 Mac with it? Or is it just an Apple Store gift certificate? Right, good question. That, that's gonna, that matters a lot. And and also, did you see there's an expiration date? Yeah, May 31st. You've got May 30. So sometime between, like, in a few weeks, Apple is going to email us and say, hey, here's how you return it. Because we don't know how to return it yet. We just know we're supposed to find the box, right? But in a few weeks, they're going to email us and say, here's how you return it. And then upon confirmed return of the DDK, you will get the 200 bucks. Then the clock starts and you've got to use that or lose it before May 31st. Yeah, so you basically have you're gonna end up having like a month <laughs> to use it. Like by the time you I actually, I mean, it's plenty of time. Like whatever. Like we don't expect to hold on to it forever. Um, I don't know if you have to buy an M1 with it, but just to to calibrate, what is two hundred dollars worth? That's how much Apple charges for an additional eight gigs of RAM. <laughs> <laughs> so you're wondering, oh, should I get the eight or the sixteen? Well, don't worry. Apple gave you two hundred bucks uh, off, and that two hundred bucks is exactly how much it costs you to upgrade from eight to sixteen. So it's not like you're getting a Mac for free or whatever. Anyway, it's fine. It's better than nothing. It's better than just renting it for five hundred dollars and getting nothing in return. But now I have now I've, suddenly I feel like Marco or Casey was like, "Oh no, why do I have these? I, I normally don't have any questions about what Macs I want to buy, but now suddenly I have this money burning a hole in my pocket. Which if I don't use it, presumably I just lose it, and that's bad. But if I do use it, that's not particularly economical because great. So I have two hundred dollars off, but then I pay all the rest of the price of the computer. So I don't know what I'm going to do. I was pricing out Mac minis, uh, mostly just because my DTK is sitting like there's a place in my little computer area for the Mac mini that is the DTK. And I would love to just swap that out with an actual M1 Mac mini and then I can actually use it. I could host my Plex stuff on it. I could do all sorts of stuff with it. You know, I have a place for a mouse and a keyboard over there. It's like nestled into my life, but who knows? So I have to I have to start thinking about this. And sometime before May 31st, I will either buy something with this $200 and buy something with I would buy something and use this $200 to help get more RAM on it. Or I would just let that $200 evaporate and feel sad. Hope you get uh, a non Bluetooth mouse to use with your Mac mini because the Bluetooth range on this Mac mini sucks. <laughs> I've been using, I've actually been using uh, my wife's old, it's a Logitech mouse and it's got the little, you know, USB plug in dongle thingy. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. I mean, so th- this DTK thing, uh, you know, when when we all got these, you know, that last summer, you know, I, I it was only $500. And I thought, well, that's a lot less than like, you know, the old DTKs back in the Intel days. Those were like 1500 I believe, something like that, right? Um, so it's like, I was like, oh, well, that, that's that's a, that's not a bad deal. And I knew it was, it was a temporary, you know, basically leasing this thing for a few months. Uh, and that's fine. At the time, I thought, modern Apple, you know, they don't need to work that hard for to, to get developer favor people are going to get people are going to want these things and i i was assuming they were going to give us nothing for them i was assuming there'd be some kind of you know recall for them at the end of the year or whatever it was and they would they would say all right thanks program's over and that'd be it and they'd give us nothing and that's not to say that that's what they should have done but that's what i expected based on like you know modern apple like 
they're not big on giving people free hardware or, or you know discounted hardware. They're real. They really don't do that anymore. Uh, so I figured that was it. We'd get nothing. So the fact that we are getting more than nothing is welcome. Uh, but there, the the number of asterisks on this is is so high. <laughs> it's like okay, well, asterisk number one. It's only two hundred dollars, which, as you said, doesn't get you very far with Mac hardware. Asterisk number two. It seems like you have to use it specifically on an M1 Mac, so that's only three computers right now. And asterisk number three, you'll ha- you'll basically have to use it between like April and May, or April and June, and so you'll have like this. You're gonna have this narrow window to use it. And the M1 Max launched in November. Yeah, they could have told us they were gonna do this. Right. Most people who need this for their development have already bought an M1 Mac, at least one. And so to to do this, it's kind of a crappy way to do it. And all those asterisks, like, I, I think, you know, if Apple, if they needed to get their stuff together and they were super busy and they, you know, they were behind schedule or whatever. Okay, fine. Then, like, make the discount code a little more flexible. You know, like, maybe give us a year to use it and let it apply to anything in the store or something like that, you know, or at least any Mac for the, for the next year, you know, something like just make it a little bit more, a little bit further from what it seems like now which is like one of those scammy mail-in rebates that have so many conditions that they want people to d- to disqualify themselves for it so they don't have to pay the rebate <laughs> you know like it's it's it feels kind of like that where it's like we, we have such an arrow window and it, it allegedly only applies to m1 max which have existed now for like three months and we most of us already have one if we needed it that badly to have a dtk so like it's just yeah it's it's kind of a it's kind of weak sauce but at the end of the day, it is more than I was expecting to get from this. Yeah, and paying $500 to be able to develop on an ARM Mac, like I did actually, especially after I banished Big Sur betas from my main computer, I was doing all my ARM and Big ARM and Big Sur development on the DTK. So, And I got that computer for 500 bucks. So as far as I'm concerned, even if I got $0 back, it was definitely worth it for me in terms of development and also having a machine that I could use Big Sur on without poisoning my computer or any of the other computers that I cared about. <laughs> well, John, if you uh, really are going to let that $200 just go poof, you know, and turn into smoke, then I call dibs and uh, I'll use it for a Mac mini that I probably shouldn't buy. Yeah, I'm sure Apple's real flexible about me trans- transitioning that $200 over to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. If you can use more than one code in an order, that could be interesting. <laughs> oh, that would be interesting. I'm sure you cannot, but that would be interesting. All right. That's okay. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys, but yeah, this is what you get for living on the bleeding edge. No, and again, this is more than I expected. So I'm, you know, on one hand, I'm like, okay, that's nice. But on the other, on the other hand, now I do feel the same pressure as John. Of like, well, now that now that I'm going to get a $200 credit of sorts, it would be kind of you know wasteful to just let it go. But at the same time, I don't need any more M1 Max. I'm very happy with the two that I already. <laughs> <laughs> that's a two is already probably one more than i actually needed and they're wonderful i love them so much but i don't need a third one for anything aye, aye, aye. all right so one of the things we always talk about come june ish is uh typically we'll do a public service announcement uh, that wherein we remind everyone do not go on an ios beta it's just not worth it for 99 percent of the world just no don't do it and I, generally speaking, do not jump on the iOS betas until late in the cycle, until, you know, August-ish. And 
I haven't jumped on any of the kind of point release betas, but oh boy, I'm thinking about it because iOS 14.5 adds support for unlocking your phone with Apple Watch while you're wearing a face mask. And that sounds delightful. Now, the good news is, since I never go anywhere, I don't wear a mask that often because I'm never leaving my house. Now, when I leave my house, of course, I have a mask on. And yes, this would be deeply convenient. But ultimately, when you don't go anywhere, when all your grocery shopping is done by, you know, plopping it in your trunk but and, and doing curbside and whatnot, uh, this isn't something that I need often. But golly, it sounds great for when I do need it. And so I can't help but ask, especially Marco, who has found a new love for his Apple Watch. Have you tried this yet? Uh, yes, I have. I mean, unfortunately, I'm currently under a lot of snow, and, and so I haven't had the reason to go out much in the world. And when I do go out currently, I'm usually pretty heavily bundled up. So taking my phone in and out of my pocket is not something I'm doing a lot of right now. But I did unlock it a few times just to try and see how it worked. Mm-hmm. And there was one time later in the day where I actually kind of legitimately needed it, like instead of just artificially doing it in my house. And it does work as advertised most of the time. It didn't, I think I did four or five unlocks total. And it it failed at one of them. It, it just didn't do it, didn't offer it. Um, but it does seem to work most of the way. It's a little slow, like because the, the the workflow is like you pick up the phone and you you know point it at your face. I think first it tries an actual face ID unlock, then that then it figures, oh, I think that's a mask. Then I think it asks your watch, hey, unlock the phone, and then it communicates. So it's like it's a it's a slower process than regular face ID would be. But it's faster than typing in a passcode. Although, honestly, it's not a ton faster if you've gotten really good at typing your passcode <laughs> in this last year. <laughs> but it's it's a very nice feature, and I'm very glad they added it. And you know, like, like Gruber posted a couple things, basically, you know, suggesting like that it's it's non-trivial. It, like it was non-trivial to get this done because you have to be damn careful if you're adding a way for something else to unlock your phone. Because that's a really massive like potential for security problems if you do anything wrong. If there's any holes in that process and there's a way for some external thing to unlock your phone, that's a big deal. And so I, I'm surprised that they did this at all, honestly. It, it, it kind of seems like maybe it wouldn't have been worth the risk. Well, they had to do it because in the grand tradition, we talked about it on last week's ATP. And then once we talk about it on the show, it comes into being magically. It was actually, wasn't it an Ask <laughs> ATP question last week? Oh, yeah, right. Someone asked, hey, what about what about unlocking your your uh, phone with your watch? And then we were saying, well, exactly what Gruber said. We said, well, you can already unlock your watch with your phone. So there's a little bit of a chicken egg thing. And they have to be very careful about how that works because you can't have them both being able to unlock each other in all scenarios because that's security, right? Um, but... They worked out the issues, right? So I, you know, you can't, if you're, if your watch is locked and you have your phone and you unlock your phone using traditional means without the watch, then that can be set up to unlock your watch. And once you've unlocked your watch, that can be, and it's on your wrist, that can be used to unlock your phone if you were to relock your phone and all their methods of unlocking on the phone failed. And I, what Marco described is exactly what I read, that it will try Face ID first and then maybe see if you have a mask and then unlock with the watch. But I do wonder about the logic of that. Like, if if it can, I don't maybe it just doesn't know this, but if, if it was able to know that you are wearing a watch and that it's nearby, I would say try that first. Like, why bother with the face ID stuff? Because the watch unlock doesn't care what the camera sees, presumably. It's like, well, whatever, I'm using the watch to unlock. But maybe there it doesn't actually know that the watch is nearby and it takes some time to figure that out. So it 
makes more sense to try uh, Face ID first. I don't know. But either way, it's one more option for people who wear masks. So it gets a thumbs up. Although this is, like you said, it's a beta. And what is it, like uh, 14.5 beta 1? What what beta number are they on? 1. Yeah, so not going to be in regular people's hands for a while. And as Casey said, I would not recommend running beta 1 of iOS. <laughs> Honestly, it's been fine for me so far. But, you know, I usually like the, the point releases like this, usually aren't as risky as like the you know the big dot zero beta one for you know in the summertime at wbdc so it's not too bad but uh yeah still (laughs) it's still certainly like a risk yeah and to go back a step john to what you were saying about you know why not just go to the watch immediately i would suspect that the the idea is trust the most trustworthy thing first so the camera that is trained to look at your face that is it it is very, very difficult to fool. Whereas it is comparatively easier to fool the phone into thinking the watch is unlocked and nearby. Not to say it's easy, but you know, compared to the thing that's internal, I would imagine it is easier. But uh, if the watch works, it doesn't matter. You're not adding any security by trying the more secure one first. If the less secure one is going to work, who cares what order it tries it in? Because if someone, if someone was going to break in and they had the watch, you know, I mean, it's... I, like, I think it's probably because it doesn't actually know that the watch is nearby and has to do a thing to make that determination. Doing that thing takes time, so it's probably still faster to do face ID. But we'll see. This is still just a beta. When when 14.5 final comes out, Marco can retest, and or you can as well, and see if, see if you can really tell whether it's actually reading your face first and then trying the watch. Yep. I, I am excited to try this when, when the time comes. I'm trying to resist going on the beta because, again, I never go anywhere. But it's tempting. We are sponsored this week by Linode, my favorite place to run my servers. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your entire enterprise's infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. I personally use Linode. I've been with them for almost a decade now, way before they were a sponsor. I've tried so many web hosts in my career and i've stuck with them the longest and i've been happiest with them because not only are they an incredible host everything you'd expect you know they have 11 global data centers they have you know all these dedicated compute instances shared compute instances uh, a new s3 compatible object storage managed kubernetes managed load balancing managed backups so many services no matter what your needs might be but also they have incredible support 24 7 365 and there's no tiers or handoffs and that's all true of even their cheapest plans no matter what your plan size is you get the same amazing support and their plans are incredibly good values this is one of the things that keeps me at linode all this time is that i pay a lot of attention to server value and linode has been the best in the business for the entire time i've been with them and there's really no like tricks to it. There's no gotchas. It's just an incredible value with incredible service and incredible support. So visit linode.com slash ATP and you can get started with $100 in free credit. Or if you aren't at your desk, you don't want to remember the URL, just try to remember to text ATP to 474747. So once again, linode.com slash ATP to get access to $100 in free credit or text ATP to 474747 and get started on Linode today. Thank you so much to Linode for hosting all my servers and for sponsoring our show. Uh, John, I heard you got a uh, late birthday present earlier today. 
Yeah, uh, someone at Apple is going through someone. A bunch of people at Apple are going through old uh, radars slash feedbacks and closing them out because I saw a whole bunch of tweets from other people saying, hey, my super old bug was closed or whatever. And that happened to me too. Uh, this was a nine and a half year old radar that I had filed. Uh, part of the response, which I will read now, was thanks for your patience and your feedback. It has been noted. We do not plan to address this issue further because so much has changed since this was filed. And as I as I tweeted, indeed, so much has changed. Like, yeah, if you wait nine and a half years, probably the thing is irrelevant. Um, this specific bug was, you know, not not a very important one. It was I filed it shortly after I had posted my review of uh, macOS 10.7 Lion to Ars Technica. That's how long ago this was. And in my review, I had linked to a tech note on Apple's website that described the HFS plus volume format. And and the day I posted this, like the day I posted it, the day Lion came out. So the day I posted this review, which was the launch day for Lion, Apple removed the, that documentation, that tech note. So I had and I had linked to it like in six different places. And of course, everyone's trying to follow the links and saying, hey, your link is broken, blah, blah, blah. The link was live the day before. <laughs> the day of publication because you know how they they do like a documentation shuffle very often to coincide with the release of a mac os or at least mm-hmm. they used to anyway they still kind of do i guess um they broke that link and so in between frantically trying to either remove the link or find i think i ended up linking it maybe to a google cache or an archive.org page i forget what i did but i also said you know what apple this was a little bit of stress that i didn't need and by the way you shouldn't have removed that tech note because it was you good historical information right or whatever hfs plus volume format it had lots of technical details about it it was pretty good it was tn1150 so that's what this bug was about and of course you know it, it was only really relevant to my life during the first week that my review had been published or the first day or so when i had to deal with that link and i'd long since forgotten about it and of course apple never did anything about it so they came by here and you know closed it with this slow this is you know we don't plan to address this blah 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 right whatever i mean i think it's good it's good that apple is going through their old bug backlog and you know bring things to some kind of resolution even if it's unsatisfying resolution some resolution is better than none (laughs) so kudos to apple for that but i will take away those kudos because (laughs) in this particular case the very first thing that i did was say you know what what is the deal with this bug now um just out of curiosity not that i care anymore because dead links in my lion review are not particularly important in my life with this right now but hey you know what did they end up doing with that anyway like is that tech note still gone so out of curiosity i went to the link that was reported as broken and wouldn't you know it it redirects to an archive version of that tech note so at some point during the last nine and a half years apple essentially fixed this problem the old URL redirects to the new, they have like a new archive section for like old outdated documentation. The old URL redirects to the new place. When did that happen? During this 9.5 years? I don't know, but some point it did. When someone did that redirect, they could have closed this bug as closed, fixed. This bug was successfully fixed. I have no idea when, but then when the reviewer came to like get rid of this old crusty bug, they didn't even do the simplest thing, which is, hey, let's just click this link that they say is broken. Because if they had done that, they would have said, we do not plan to address this. We said, oh, we fixed this. I don't know when we fixed it, but we totally fixed it. You're welcome. But they didn't even do that. So I'm, I continue to be disappointed with the level of interaction that the people who are 
updating bugs have with those very bugs, whether it's not telling me whether they ran a sample project, not telling me whether they're able to reproduce a problem, or not doing something as simple as, hey, this thing says I have a broken link. Is the link actually broken? Click. Nope, it's totally not broken. Close. Fixed. Instead, they just said, we're not going to do anything about this. Oh, and by the way, you can close it yourself. They didn't even close it. They didn't even change the status. You can just close this yourself. So I closed it as resolved because guess what? It's resolved. When was it resolved? I don't know. So, the you know, it, it's fine in the grand scheme of things. It's not a big deal, but it's frustrating for me. It makes me think that a computer did it and not a human. Or maybe the human who did it was overworked and harried and did not have time. doesn't have time to actually read each of these radars and engage with it. But I feel like if you're, if you're closing old bugs, don't you have to read the bug a little bit? to know like what to say it's i don't think it's entirely computer because the other people who are tweeting like here's what my old bug said the wording is different like they said slightly different things for different bugs it's it's really it's really just i don't understand what's going on at the other end of this pipeline i don't know if it's just like a bird pecking on a keyboard or like a random number generator or just uh, i don't know it's one of those uh little birdies that just pecks over and over again it's yeah. like Snowpiercer. You just go up to the front and pull up the floorboards, and I don't want to. I don't want to ruin the movie. Sorry, I've been watching the TV series. That's why it's on my brain. No spoilers. No spoilers. For the record, I was trying poorly to make a Simpsons reference, and it didn't land. But that was my own fault. That's okay. All right, moving right along, we have uh, some talk that we've been promising this episode about Sony cameras, of all things. I know nothing about what it is you would like to talk about, John. So, what's going on? This is just a, a quick item. Um, Sony continues to roll out new cameras. Uh, I don't. I haven't been following the rumors for the for their top of the line stuff. Uh, so I don't know if this was rumors, but it was a surprise to me um, because what I had been expecting was new iterations of all this, the cameras Sony already makes. I think we talked about it on the show uh, a while ago when they came out with the new version of the A7R and how they hadn't come out with a new version of the A7 yet, and they came out with the surprise A7C, which is like a full-frame camera in like a small body like mine, my little tiny A6300. This new camera is the A1, which is a bold naming statement for a camera that is extremely capable. It's their flagship camera. It is fairly amazing. It costs a huge amount of money. I think it's the most expensive camera Sony has ever made, or at least the most expensive, like, consumer camera that they ever made it's six thousand five hundred dollars just for the ball oh, it really hurts grief. <laughs> right but you know hey it's a1 it's the top of the line a number one um so here are the specs uh 50 megapixel sensor it will shoot 8k video at 30 frames per second and that 8k is down sampled from a larger than 8k uh, region on the sensor which is cool it will do 4k 120 frames per second um but one of the most important and most relevant specs is it will do 30 frames per second in uh, from the the photo part of the camera. <laughs> Not 30 frames per second video. It will take photographs, 50 megapixel photographs at 30 frames per second. It will do 20 photos per second in lossless RAW. My <laughs> right? goodness. And the mechanical shutter is a mere 10, 10 frames per second, right? So it's doing 20 and 30 with the electronic shutter. Now, everyone doesn't like electronic shutters if you've ever used them because, especially with large sensors, you get all sorts of rolling shutter artifacts and all sorts of weird stuff. Um, but all of this, all the specs that I read you are relevant to a thing that has come up in a bunch of the reviews and has got me thinking about it, and we've talked about it in this program as well, which is on our phone cameras, 
they have tiny, crappy sensors, but they take amazing photographs because of the magic of the computers inside them. And we haven't gotten into too many gory details, or, or if we have, we haven't really connected the dots to why that's possible. One reason is, of course, you know, they're done by computer companies, and those computer companies have very clever people who work for them who know how to do all the clever algorithms to take a very noisy, crappy set of bits from a sensor in a phone and make a good picture out of it. That's very difficult to do. It's a very big software problem, as Marco talked about before, of like, it's really hard to do software. Sony can make really good camera sensors, but do they have a team that can do what we call computational photography as well as Apple or you know Google or any of these other companies? that make good smartphone cameras. It's actually a very hard problem. But there is a second thing that, uh, a second factor in why a big camera like this, like a, you know, quote unquote real camera, a full frame camera with a huge sensor, wasn't, isn't, hasn't been able to do what our phone cameras do. One of the things our phone cameras do, um, well, speaking of electronic shutter, for one, we, none of us hear a shutter sound. Well, maybe you do if you have the audio on, but honestly, you should turn that off. Um, <laughs> There's no shutter, as in a physical thing that goes in front of the sensor and then reveals the sensor and then goes in front of it again in our phone cameras. They all use what we call an electronic shutter. The sensor is just constantly exposed to light. Light comes in, it's just hitting the sensor constantly. And then the phone just decides, okay, I'm going to read the light that's hitting the sensor now. And that's when I'm going to take my picture. That's called an electronic shutter. But on big cameras, it's difficult to do that because big cameras have big sensors, as in like, I don't know, how big is a full-frame sensor? Like the size of... 35 millimeters. I was going to say a 50-cent piece, but people don't know what that is. No one knows what 35 millimeters (laughs) is either. Um, It's about the size of an iPod screen, a little smaller, I think. Maybe like an iPod nano screen. It's smaller than a business card, but it's larger than a postage stamp, depending on the size of your sensor, right? Bigger than a bread box, John. It's like if if you've seen like those larger-than-usual postage stamps, it's like that size. Right, but if you think about the sensor in, in your phone camera, it's smaller than your pinky nail. Like, it's really, really tiny in your phone. The sensors are very, very small, but the sensors in, in quote-unquote real cameras, especially expensive ones, are very large. And the problem has been readout. How long does it take to ask sensor, hey, sensor, what is hitting you right now? You can get all of the information from a tiny little phone-sized, you know, pinky nail-sized sensor pretty quickly, right? It doesn't have as many many megapixels. It's not as big. And the camera sensors, it isn't exactly as simple as you think it is in terms of just having red, green, and blue sensors. There's all sorts of details on how they're read out and demosaic and all that other stuff, right? So it's easier to do that in a small sensor. And the second thing for, for and by the way, if you don't, if you have slow readout speed and you use electronic shutter, it could be that you read the top pixels at one moment. And then by the time you get down to reading the bottom pixels, you've moved the camera and now you have a slanty picture, Right. And you can see this with electronic <laughs> shutter on older cameras. If you, you know, whip the camera around in a circle and take a picture with the electronic shutter, everything's all wavy in it because it didn't, it read the sensor from top to bottom or left to right or whatever. And it read one pixel at a different time than it read the other pixel because it takes a long time to read out 50 megapixels, whatever, from a sensor, right? As evidenced in this Sony camera that it can shoot 30 frames per second from this giant sensor, or 20 frames per second in lossless, this sensor is actually allowed to read, uh, able to read out all of its picture, all of its pixels very, very quickly in one thirtieth of a second. That's amazing and important. So let's use an electronic shutter because, you know, you could have a, a shutter speed of one thirtieth of a second. That's a reasonable shutter speed in many scenarios. You can get every single pixel in that one exposure 
just like you would if it was a piece of film or another sensor where you lifted the mechanical shutter, expose everything, and then close the mechanical shutter, right? The second thing that makes this sensor's readout speed interesting is that one of the ways our phones take better pictures is not just by getting the pixels from the sensor and then doing smart things with them. Our phones, when you're, especially when you're in the camera app or whatever, are constantly taking pictures. They're just not saving them. It's a rolling buffer of pictures. I don't know how many are in there. Maybe Marco knows, but like... I don't. It's... Now, let's just say it's like 10, 20, or 30 pictures. I can tell you it's exactly enough to kick Overcast out of RAM every time. <laughs> right. <laughs> when when you're in the camera app and you're just looking around, it is constantly taking picture after picture after picture after picture in this one big rolling buffer. And when that buffer fills up, the, 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 the oldest picture gets kicked out and the new one comes in. It's constantly doing that. And when you hit the shutter button, what it's doing then is not taking the picture. It is saying, okay... Of all the frames that are currently in the rolling buffer, take the one, two, three, four, ten, I don't even know how many frames around the time that button was pressed and combine them all to make one really good photo. So it's not just taking one readout of the sensor. Very often, I don't know if all the time, but I imagine very often it's taking multiple readouts of the sensor over time and combining them with computer smarts to reduce noise, increase more detail, so on and so forth. Now, if you're whipping your camera around in a circle and you do that, it's much more difficult to line those things up because maybe you only have a partial picture on the frame or maybe the frame has shifted so much that you can't realign them or maybe subject has moved in between, right? It's a hard problem, but that's what phone cameras do to make amazing pictures is they take more than one photo and combine them into a single one. HDR is another example, right? In the quote-unquote expensive real camera world, they just weren't able to do that because it took so long to get to read one frame off the camera that you can't constantly be taking hundreds of frames in a rolling buffer and combining them because you just couldn't get that many photos that close to each other in time. But now with the Sony A1 and presumably future cameras with incredible readout speed where they're able to read the entire sensor 30 times per second, it becomes possible for a camera like this to do what phone cameras do. I say possible because the Sony A1 doesn't do any of the stuff that I'm describing, but previously, <laughs> but for two reasons. One, previously it just couldn't because you couldn't read the sensor that fast. And two, Sony doesn't have, as far as I'm aware, software to do that. So I'm excited for this camera. It's a technical marvel. Like I'm not going to buy one. It's too expensive, blah, blah, blah. But it does mean that the next frontier of, uh, you know, high-end photography and video cameras is not so much us keep adding more megapixels because there I think there have been cameras with more megapixels and they're just they're not chasing that anymore it seems like but instead it's readout speed it's how fast can I read this sensor and there's a whole bunch of buffers down the line in the cache hierarchy how big is the rolling buffer of photos how fast can I read out how fast can I dump them to storage uh, again the A1 has lots of impressive specs here where you can just hold down the shutter and fill your giant uh, what is it CF Express 2 or whatever 160 gigabyte card with a huge number of photos. How long How long before you have to stop holding down the shutter? What does the photography rate decrease to? It's pretty amazing. You can take hundreds of photos. Um, and also the IO is so fast that if you take your finger off the shutter for a second, it will make sure it dumps them all to the card, um, which is a big change from cameras from only a few years ago where once you filled the buffer, you'd have to wait like five or 10 seconds for it to flush the buffer to the card and then you can take photographs again. So... Uh, this 
as an exciting camera, even though uh, there's no way in hell I'm going to buy it. Although I would definitely take one for free if someone wants to give me one. Um, <laughs> but I'm mostly excited that it will become plausible for camera companies like Sony and Canon or whatever to do what our phone cameras do in the coming years. Pl- I say plausible because the hardware will be able to do it. It's just a question of whether they will be able to make the software to do it. And it also makes me think one more time of, you know, uh, Gruber reminded me of it when he, when he posted a recollection of Phil Schiller on stage at one of the WWDCs saying, uh, or Gruber asked, is Apple the best uh, phone camera company in the world? And Phil said, no, we're the best camera company in the world. That was years ago, by the way, and Apple hasn't shipped a dedicated camera. But if Apple ever did want to ship a dedicated camera, they could buy the sensor from Sony. They could do their own computational photography and, you know, maybe let someone else do the lenses. And, boy, that would be an amazing product. But it would probably cost more than my Mac Pro. (laughs) I mean, if we start saying that it's okay to spend $6,000 on a camera body, the next thing you know, we're all going to be spending $6,000 on mono. Oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> monitor is way bigger than that camera. So just in terms of square inches, you're really getting your money. But the, the, the camera does have a display on it, but the display is terrible compared to this monitor. It's very tiny. Mm, does it have a $1,000 stand? I don't think it's – I bet there is a stand you can get for these cameras that cost $1,000 because that's what camera equipment is like. Oh, yeah. It's called a tripod. Like a really good tripod is probably more than that. I mean like this, this is – I, I haven't been paying attention to the camera world um, for lots of reasons, including the fact that I, I think I've actually – finally admitted to myself that I'm, I don't care anymore about cameras, but, um, I, I really am very impressed to see this, you know, being pushed forward. I mean, this category of camera, like, you know, you're like, Oh my God, $6,000. That's nothing new. Like, like back when I was more of a camera head, this would basically be the the competitor to like the Canon one D series, uh, which is aimed at like sports photographers, new uh, photojournalists, like people who need like really really high-end hardware for very like fast capture that's like that's where the sports comes in usually um stuff like that so like there is definitely a market for this that they are directly attacking with this it's not like totally unreasonable for that market i'm glad to see that they're still in the game i'm glad to see that this this is still moving forward even though i'm not in it anymore uh it still excites me like on a technical level that this kind of stuff is is still happening yeah, the exciting thing about this camera is previously Sony had split its top end line into two models. The one for sports, which is the one that had the crazy high frame rate and the the fast readouts that was like the A9 series. Yeah. And then the one that was super high resolution, which was the A7R series, which had lots of megapixels, but didn't concentrate so much on being able to shoot at high frame rates and being able to dump to the card fast or whatever. And this A1 does both. It has more megapixels than the than the A7R series, and it has faster shooting than the A9 series, and it costs as much as both of them combined. So there you go. <laughs> like that. That's why it's impressive. Like you don't have to choose anymore. If you're wondering like which Sony should I get, just get the most expensive one because it does all the things. <laughs> which is good. Like it's good to have that option if it can exist. Yeah. Um. And also like this. There's a bunch of more interesting things about this sensor. This is a brand new sensor. It's got the RAM stuck on the back of it. It's stacked CMOS. It's like it's. It's the next advance in the sensor thing, but it has the effect of making all the rest of Sony's cameras kind of like the M1 say, okay, but when are the other cameras going to get a good sensor like this? Not like not this exact sensor, obviously, but like a, a scaled down version of the sensor. It's just sort of the, it's, or like the new LG OLED panel that they're only putting in their highest end TV kind of makes you wish, oh, but when are they going to put that panel on the affordable TV? So this is truly a flagship, you know, top end bleeding edge product. And we'll have to wait until next year for it to start to trickle down. I've, I put this in here mostly because I've been deeply into 
again, I, I tend not to fret too much about computer purchases, but camera purchases, I'm just like, <laughs> just like the two of you. I've been fretting about what camera to buy for so long, going back and forth and back and forth, just learning about cameras and lenses and trade-offs and prices. And ugh, this, I mean, this particular camera doesn't throw a monkey wrench in anything because there's no way I'm buying this. But now I know the technology that's available. And I'm like, oh, when the a, the new A7, the A7 IV comes out, not the A7R4, their names are so bad, but the A7 <laughs> without any stuff after it, when the fourth, when that one comes out, will it use one of these new sensors? Because the rumors are it doesn't use the same sensor as the old one. Like the A7C came out, but it uses the same. It's basically like an A7 III inside a compact. Oh, I know this is just nonsensical jargon to everybody. But the point is, kind of like TVs, cameras, I'm now in this paralysis mode where I don't want any of the current products. And I can envision a product with current technology that if I could take one from column A and one from column B and one from column C and shove it into a camera, <laughs> that's the one I want. But they haven't made it yet, so I just sit here buying nothing and looking at reviews. <laughs> So yeah, this this is again like you know I, I think I've I've largely admitted to myself finally that like I'm just I'm no longer into photography um, and 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 my iPhone satisfies my needs perfectly well enough um, but it, like one of the things that I think would be very welcome is what you're saying like if, if the if the big cameras start to develop the ability to do some of the good tricks that phone cameras are doing related to software-based you know image enhancements and everything like to, to do some more of that i mean to some degree cameras have always done that like you know if you compare like an unprocessed raw to the jpegs the camera makes obviously they're doing some processing they're doing some noise reduction they're doing color mapping and stuff like that um so there's always been some degree of processing that that the cameras do but it's it you know phones have so far surpassed what what cameras have, are doing that phones can now make incredible images in tons of conditions and, and situations and and of subject matter that big cameras can't even approach not even close well, you know, on that topic by the way though one of the things i'm always looking at is the advancement of sony's sort of class leading uh autofocus and uh you know the one one feature that they've had for years that they keep improving is their uh, object tracking and eye detection. Because mm-hmm. when you're taking a picture of a person, you usually want the eye to be in focus. There's no reason that our iPhones can't be doing that. Like it's not a computational challenge that the iPhone can't tackle. Like the iPhone <laughs> processor crushes anything in these these cameras. Why doesn't why don't our iPhones do face and eye tracking? They do face detection. They'll put a box around a person's face, right? But they don't. It, I mean, maybe they do it and they just don't show the little box. But I would love for them to find people's eyes, so it wouldn't focus on like my big nose, but it would actually get the focus back a little. Maybe it doesn't matter because the <laughs> the aperture is so small in these things that the difference between focusing on the tip of my nose and focusing on my eyes is never going to be noticeable at at the apertures of these things. But I, it just seems like a thing they could do. And on that front, by the way, Sony Sony did eye detection. Then they did animal eye detection because eye detection would never work on your dog because their eyes look different than ours. And this year they added a third item. Like they have a menu for it. It's like uh, fish. I don't know why. <laughs> they did eye detection, uh, animal eye detection, and bird eye detection, which makes sense because people take pictures of birds. But birds are animals, people. Come on, rename them. Items. <laughs> like what the yeah. animal eye detection? It's like a, it's like throwing shade on the birds. We've got people, animals, and birds. <laughs> stupid dinosaurs <laughs> what if you want to take a picture that includes your cat attacking a bird in midair what will it focus on 
according to the reviews, the bird eye detection works so badly that it will not get it will not get the bird. I mean, the, the bird detection, they got to work on that because it's the first year it's out. But it's totally for people who take pictures of birds, like literal actual birds with those really long lenses, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, because, um, again, like if you're if you're aiming, if you're no pun intended, if, if you're aiming your, your camera market um, at people who still buy big cameras and whose needs are not solved by phone cameras. Birdwatchers are actually a surprisingly large category because they need such incredible telephoto distance. Like the, a phone will never have that. So like it does make sense for them to add that. Yeah. And these things are, you know, these are examples of computational photography because this is all machine learning. Like uh, the Canons actually have much better bird detect, I think, where they will, they will find a bird. And when the bird turns its head towards the camera, then they will find the eye of the bird. And that's all based on machine learning stuff of recognizing what the heck does a bird look like. Same thing for, you know, because it's the whole body of the bird that they're finding. You know, there's basic object detection of the thing that's moving. But the bird detect is like, I don't, not only do I recognize that's an object, but that's a bird. So they're coming along. Well, like I said, the sensor readout, it sounds like such a minor thing. But until this happened, there was no way for a top-end camera to be able to do what the iPhone does by combining three or four or five photos into one because it couldn't get three or four or five different readouts from that sensor in a short enough period of time with a moving subject to do anything useful. And now suddenly that becomes plausible. It seems weird to me that Canon or Sony or somebody hasn't like thrown all the money at people at Google or Apple that are on the camera team and just said, hey, you know, the computational photography stuff, we want that, please, you know, come work for us and make that. And I know it's not quite that simple, but it seems like it would be a real winner. Yeah, Apple and Google are slightly more profitable companies than Sony. So hiring (laughs) people away is going to be tricky. Well, and I think there's also, you know, I think there's there will be two major challenges off the top of my head for that. I mean, number one is like, I don't know how much their market is actually asking for that. You know, as as phones have gotten so good and have destroyed the entire like low to mid and slowly eating the high end of the market, the people who are still buying Sony's high end cameras and and everyone else's high end cameras are mostly people who don't want a lot of that processing. I, I bet like it's it's yeah, mostly people point. who are who are using it more professionally who want more raw type stuff. I mean video took over the entire you know slr style and mirrorless market as well i mean many of these cameras are used only as video cameras for their entire lives they just because they happen to be really good video cameras and and you know i think that that video taking over with this market kind of saved a lot of this market i think i think i think a lot of these companies would have been done a while ago if not for video I mean, they can steal features from from Apple there, too. Like, you know, the thing that Apple does where I forget what frame rate, but you take it in one frame rate and it takes two of every frame and then combines them or whatever like that. You know, I think it's like if you shoot, you shoot it and you get 30 frame per second video, but the, the video is actually taking 60 frames and then either it's picking the best one or combining them. These cameras should totally do that. Like, that's a great idea. And they're able to do 4K at 120, so they have frames to spare. But as far as I'm aware, none of them do it. Well, but I, I think this gets to the second problem. <laughs> you know, problem problem one is their market doesn't really seem to demand a lot of this stuff. But problem two, I think, if you look at, like, the, the ridiculous advances in silicon and hardware required for the iPhone every year to do this kind of processing with a tiny little sensor, it might not be technologically feasible at a reasonable price in a camera body without like a giant fan in it to do this level of processing for, th- for like a sensor that big from a big camera in real time. Like it just might not be reasonably technically within Sony's ability to make an image signal processor that could do that. 
they're doing pretty good. Like they, Sony had overheating problems with a lot of their cameras. In fact, my line of cameras has that problem for this exact reason, that the thing that was overheating was the CPU, right? Um, but they more or less seem to have solved that with the current generation of cameras, presumably by having TSMC make them chips in a smaller process size. But I, I think that they've mostly, the technology is there to do the silicon fabbing and to do the image processing. Because remember, Sony also has image processing expertise, like, for example, in their televisions. Like, that's one of the main selling points of their television. They take an LG panel and they slap onto it a Sony image processor. Uh, so I, th- I think they're pretty good at doing that image processing. And more recently, through no thanks to Sony, but thanks to TSMC or other companies, they're able to get that within a reasonable power envelope and, and like you said, and more importantly, a reasonable heat envelope in their cameras that I think they're within shooting distance of doing this. I mean, we'll see when they get these cam- this 50 megapixel thing out, but like they remove the recording limits on all their things. They can go for an hour at a time without overheating or anything. And now this one is, is shooting 50 megapixels at 30 frames per second in photos. So I, I feel like they, the grunt is there hardware-wise. They just need to get the software part of it together. Um, I mean, this is, you know, this is the top of the top end. We'll circle back in three years and see how it's trickled down. But they really could use some of that expertise from the 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 phone market. I, I know what you're saying, like, well, pros don't want that. They don't want you messing with their pictures. But I think for a lot of applications, especially for the, the YouTuber market and that type of thing, they do want you to do stuff like Apple does with the video. It's the reason so many YouTubers rave about the video quality from Apple's uh, phones. Because Apple does all this clever processing with your video to make it look reasonable right out of the camera. We are sponsored this week by Flatfile. Nearly everyone has dealt with formatting CSV or Excel files so the data can be correctly imported into an application. It's a huge pain. Companies of all sizes spend exorbitant amounts of effort trying to fix this problem. Typical solutions include using CSV templates, emailing Excel files back and forth, or hiring expensive implementations teams. Our friends at Flatfile are working on Concierge, which offers no-code collaborative workspaces for onboarding data. Invite customers to securely import, format, or merge spreadsheet data. No fumbling with FTP uploads or emailing sensitive Excel files back and forth or formatting yet another CSV template. Flatfile is on a mission to help companies spend less time formatting spreadsheet data and more time using it. Curious how they can help your business? Visit flatfile.io. That's flatfile.io. Thank you so much to Flatfile for sponsoring our show. All right, let's do some Ask ATP. Donald Rabideau writes, do you use any utilities like CleanMyMac X or 10 or whatever, or Onyx to perform system maintenance? If not, is there any particular reason? Uh, I don't. Uh, I haven't ever really felt the need to. And plus, uh, for a while there, I was, you know, reinstalling Mac OS like it was going out of style. And so, uh, like I've said many, many, many times on the show, to some degree, I consider my computers mostly ephemeral. So I never have a build that, it seems like I never have a build that sticks around long enough to, to develop the sort of cruft that one of these I suspect would get rid of. But I don't know, that's just me. Marco, how about you? So I'm going to say two things that are potentially conflicting. Oh, this will be good. <laughs> um, I never run anything like this. I don't think such utilities are usually necessary. Uh, I think there's a lot of there's always been a lot of like superstition, and uh, you know, in in computer solutions, you know, even back when we were in the Windows days, like you know, people thought like, 
uh, if if you defrag every night, it'll it'll save your hard drive <laughs> and it'll make things run faster because everything will be in optimized loading locations and everything. And you know, you, you hear about all these you know procedures you should run to maintain your computer, um, and a lot of them I think are just superstition and don't actually don't actually end up being necessary uh, or don't don't provide meaningful improvements. And so I never use any of these kind of utilities, um, and I, I don't think most people need to. The second half of what I'm about to say now. <laughs> I'm currently on an installation of Mac OS that I need to badly do a reinstall because it doesn't work very well. <laughs> Why is that? There's, this is the one that, that I, I imported from my iMac Pro onto my new Mac Mini. And it, it's there's a lot of stuff about it that's messed up. Like I can't, for, one of the biggest things that drive me nuts that I think might motivate me to actually finally do this is that I can't search in mail anymore. Oh, neat. And I've tried. I've gone like looked and looked at all the different like crappy web website articles of how tos of like how to rebuild your mail search, and I've done everything that all of them have suggested, and it doesn't work. <laughs> and so every search returns zero results, and it turns out I search my mail a lot. That's actually a fairly common thing that I need to I need to find an email. Uh, so uh, yeah, I have to do a reinstall. Other interesting side note that it has nothing to do with this question, but I, I looked it up um, a little while ago during our show, some real-time follow-up. My Mac Mini return window is still active for the next two hours. Oh, which, why would you want to? <laughs> I don't know, but it's it's interesting to know that, I guess. <laughs> like, I could theoretically return this Mac Mini and then in April spend the Apple credit... <laughs> <laughs> new one if I still oh, want one. Oh, <laughs> I see your point. I see your point. I missed your point. Yes, I'm, I'm not. You now. I'm not entirely sure I, that would be worth doing, but it is worth knowing that I can do that. <laughs> also, you know, <laughs> um, I I really kind of miss my MacBook Air, like as my primary computer. So we'll see. Maybe I I don't know. And and it turns out like all of my problems that I was having with the Thunderbolt docks seemed to mostly be that my Ethernet wire in the wall was bad <laughs> and so actually the rest of the thunderbolt dock ecosystem seemed to work just fine oh marco all right john do you do any of this sort of thing well i'm going to i know the question is asking us whether we, whether we use it but i'm going to echo marco's uh, advice that in general if you have a mac you do not need to do any of these things for multiple reasons the first reason is that lots of these sort of Preventative maintenance procedures, or as Marco called them, superstitions, that is a fertile ground for scam mm-hmm. apps, right? Because they are always they always want to advertise, your computer may be in danger, you may have a virus, you need to do this, run this program every day to make sure your Mac is healthy. A lot of those apps are scam apps. They're apps that are installing malware, mining for Bitcoin, doing all sorts of terrible things, putting toolbars in your browsers back in the old days, like... All sorts of unsavory things. So that's one reason to avoid them. The second is you don't actually need to do any of the things that these things do, like even the good ones that are actually legitimate applications. Your Mac will run just fine on its own. Or if it doesn't, it's a bug in the OS that will be fixed in an upcoming version of the OS. And it's not like uh, it's something you need to do to fix it. So I do not recommend people seek out these programs. I do not recommend people respond to ads that advertise these programs. I don't recommend people get these programs. That said... I have several of these programs, and I'll tell you why. Um, sometimes, if you are a, a you know 
technically oriented Mac enthusiast, you may find yourself in a situation where your Mac is doing a weird thing and you want to figure out how to make it stop. And the solution is to do one of the many things that these pro the legitimate programs of these type do. Reset your launch services database, delete some caches, uh, rebuild your mail index, right? Mm. Uh, delete your spotlight index and rebuild it. Like all sorts of reset your PRAM. Who knows? There's a million things that you can do. You don't need one of these tools to do those things at all. You can do them all from like the command line or whatever, right? But if you're technical enough to want to try to fix something yourself, but not technical enough to trust yourself messing with the command line, if you can find one of these programs that is legitimate and frequently updated, that's the key, frequently updated. So like the way you can tell is like, oh, Big Sur has been released. Is there a new version of Insert Tool X for Big Sur out like the day of or a few days after? That shows that someone is updating that thing, hopefully in a legitimate way, right? If, on the other hand, you have a version of one of these programs that you got three years ago and you try running it today, hopefully it will refuse to run and say, whoa, I can't run on this. I don't even know what OS you're running on. If it doesn't refuse to run, that's another warning sign, right? So in the best <laughs> case, occasionally... I will want to use one of these tools to do a thing with less work than me trying to go through my old notes documents and look up some command line incantation. Because remember, the command line incantations change from OS to OS as well. And so if you do a web search for like how to reset your launch services database, you might find a command line that worked three years ago that doesn't work now or does damage now. A well-maintained version of one of these utilities will have the up-to-date way to try to do the things that it does. That said, even the best of these programs can absolutely be accidentally used to screw up your system, either because of bugs in the program or because the user error, as in you probably didn't want to do that and now you're in a bad situation, right? So once again, I will say you should not have one of these programs. You gener In general, you don't need it, but occasionally I resort to it. To tr even if it's just a, I like the best of these tools will tell you what it's going to do from the command line just to say, hey, I'm not going to ask you to do it. But if you were to do it, show me the command line you would run. <laughs> and then I can use that as an input into my larger problem solving saying, well, this tool says it's going to run this command line. And these Google search results say you should try this command line. And this Apple forum post says I tried this command line. And then I can try to figure out what, it, you know, what, what the truth is. Read some man pages, try some experiments myself. Like, but we're way off in the weeds here. This, if you find yourself having to do this type of debugging, you should probably just, you know, I would say take it to the Apple store, but I don't, I don't know what you do now in COVID times, but <laughs> yeah, don't get one of these programs, but a really good one of these programs is actually a useful tool to have. I will say one tool I do use, which is not really one of these programs, but it's kind of in the outfield, <laughs> maybe in the ballpark, maybe. Um, I use the like the disk space searching programs that will scan your disk and tell you like where your where your space is going. Oh, I I wouldn't put those in this category at all. Everyone should have a disk space scanning program because those are read only, non destructive, and they're really useful. Yeah, well, they can you can destruct with them. Like you can delete from them usually. Like oh, really? Which which ones do you have that you can delete from? Daisy disk. Daisy Disk and Space Gremlin are the two favorites in this household. Uh, Tiff prefers Daisy Disk for the prettiness. I prefer Space Gremlin because, I mean, it looks like it was designed by a Space Gremlin, but it was it. I I prefer it just the way it works. Um, yeah. So da Daisy Disk, I think, is the more common choice. 
my recommended one is Grand Perspective. It used to be called Disk Inventory 10, or actually Disk Inventory 10 was the original one that had this UI. And I think Grand Perspective is the more modern incarnation. I don't know if they're related in any way, but they look very similar. And all it will do is give you a big view of a bunch of, you know, a rectangular view of your hard disk and based on area, what's filling the space. Uh, and that's it. That's all it does. And you can mouse over the little rectangle, the, the big rectangle and say, what the heck is this giant rectangle? And you find out it's like, you know, well, here's, here's the danger. These programs don't delete anything, but they'll tell you what all the files are. And you're like, what is this big rectangle? VM image. Do I need that? I'm going to go delete it. Right. No, usually they're smarter than that. Like usually they, they don't, they don't usually show like system stuff by default. Um, or let you delete it by default. But I mean, Grand Perspective, Grand Perspective doesn't show you things that aren't owned by you because it doesn't have permission to, especially in this modern OS, even if you get full disk access, like I don't think it runs this route. But it does show you everything. And the danger of one of these programs is not that the program is going to do anything, because as far as I'm aware, Grand Perspective can't actually modify your disk at all. But it's the user who says, I don't know what this thing is. I'm going to delete it. It's like the story of, you know, when Mac OS X first came out and everyone found a library folder and like, Whatever this library thing is, I don't need it. And they would just delete it. And in the old days of <laughs> Mac OS X, there was no system integrity protection or anything like that. And you owned the library folder that was in your home directory. So people would just delete it. Like, I guess this, this the new version of Mac OS comes with books or something, but I don't want any of that. Let me just delete library. And that would just destroy <laughs> their, their entire account because now you can't even log in anymore because there was essential files in the library folder. Or, you know, system slash library or slash system. Or, you know, it's it's a, a classic thing on the Mac of people finding the system folder and saying, I don't need all this stuff and just putting it all in the trash. So even though these programs themselves are not harmful, they give you enough rope to hang yourself because now you know where all the big files are and you don't think the computer should need that big file, but it may turn out the computer really does need that big file. System integrity protection helps a lot here because it will prevent you from deleting parts of the OS, but there are still things that are not technically part of the OS that you could delete with like, you know, authenticating it as an administrator or something that you probably shouldn't delete. So be careful. But I think a program like that is really useful for you to find like the three, you know, uh, movies you downloaded in iTunes five years ago that are each taking up five gigs of space in your hard drive and you totally <laughs> forgot about. <laughs> By the way, uh, one more real-time follow-up. So m- m- another thing that's wrong with my installation that I'm using <laughs> In addition to, you know, the the aforementioned issues is that somehow when I migrated this installation to the new Mac Mini, I got a previously relocated items folder, uh, which contained nothing of use. So I put it in the trash and I tried to empty the trash and I now have this item that I cannot empty from the trash. It says uh, that because previously relocated items includes the folders, the subfolders security user like USR, the Unix kind of user. And then in that a sim link to x11 and i can't delete it because it says x11 is required by the system and i can't put it anywhere else so i have this item that's just stuck i just can't empty my trash forever just i have a non-empty trash forever (laughs) so there's oh i also have the windows server high cpu usage bug on this one even though chrome is totally gone from this computer like so yeah there's there's a lot that's not right with this installation but i'm still not going to run some other weird utility (laughs) i'm just going to reinstall it Sometimes Finder refuses to empty your trash, but if you just go to the command line and go into your .trash folder, you can you can just do rm minus rf and it'll kill it. Uh-huh. Sudo rm minus rf will definitely almost certainly kill it. Be careful! Like I'm telling you to run terrible commands. Like carefully, Marco specifically, <laughs> and nobody else, carefully go into your .trash folder in your home directory. Where is it? Is it is it under the volumes trashes? No, it's just in your home directory. 
Oh, look at that. Dot trash. CD dot trash. And then it, do you see all the files there? If you do, uh, just try RM minus RF on those files and sudo if it doesn't, that doesn't work. Hey, maybe not while we're recording. Not while we're recording, please. <laughs> what do you. I need X11 for? <laughs> I am not allowed to ls dot trash my home directory, even with sudo. Operation not permitted. Uh, do you have an admin account? Yes. <laughs> this is my account. <laughs> I'm telling you, this installation's not right. <laughs> I gotta yeah, get rid not, of it. That's, that's not, not right. You should be able to list your own trash. <laughs> I almost, I almost decided to record tonight from the Mac, from the uh, MacBook Air. I almost like plugged it back into my whole docking at my desk just because that installation is so good and I miss it so much as I'm using this one. But I haven't had time to blow this one away because I've been, I've been pretty busy. Ugh, I gotta get rid of this. Does your dot trash directory have any extended attributes set on it? Or does it have weird owners or permissions? I don't know. I don't. I don't want to deal with this. I just want to blow All this right, away. Well, this I, is not the I, only I, issue. Step one, reboot, and then step two, see what the heck's yeah. going on. But honestly, step three, the Mac Mini really does suck at Bluetooth reception. I had to like, I have to keep moving it closer to my like my main stuff setup. Like I, I first had it like beside my desk on top of a file cabinet, like which because it, it could be tucked away neatly there. And there, the mouse barely worked, and and watch unlock wouldn't work at all. I would say it's too far away. So I, I now have it like scooted over, like tilted up behind a speaker, but it's like it still has really flaky reception. <laughs> it's like this is so much worse than the MacBook Air. Oh god. Oh my god. To go back a half step, I really like Daisy Disk, and I recommend that one. Yeah, and I really like Space Gremlin. If if, if Daisy Disk is not your style, try Space Gremlin. It's it's my favorite. All right, Dan Blundell writes, I just got a Mac Mini with 8 gigs of RAM. Performance is great, but it typically uses between 500 megs and 2 gigs of swap memory. I don't notice a hit in terms of performance, but I read in a couple of places that swap memory might impact the lifespan of the SSD. Other places say it's not really a concern with modern SSDs. If I'm satisfied with performance, is protecting the SSD from swap memory a good enough reason to pay the premium for more RAM? I mean, honestly, I don't know why, if you can afford it, you wouldn't just get more RAM, but it sounds like the ship has already sailed. So I honestly don't know what the situation is with lots and lots of writes on SSDs these days. As our resident file system expert, John, what's the situation here? So uh, first thing to keep in mind is the amount of swap memory, as shown by the various places in the OS, is not really what you're interested in. What you're interested in is how many page-ins and page-outs to the swap file are happening, like activity traffic, right? So swap files tend to be allocated in these very large chunks. Just because you have a big swap file in one of these large chunks, if nothing is being read or written to it very frequently, it's no big deal, right? You only care about the traffic. And uh, as Dan noted, uh, lots of Activity on SSD slowly, very slowly, wears it out. Um, so you should be concerned if there is a tremendous amount of activity going to and from your SSD anywhere, not just your swap file. So what you want to know is, am I swapping, not do I have a two gig swap file hanging around somewhere, right? Now, if you've determined that you are frequently swapping a lot, it would surprise me if you didn't notice this because although SSDs are much faster than spinning disks, they're much slower than RAM. So if you were paging in and out to that swap file a lot, I feel like you would notice that uh, performance-wise. Now, SSDs deal with the wear-out factor by essentially being over-provisioned by some amount. So as they wear out cells inside them, there's actually more than whatever, you know, say you get a 512 uh, gigabyte SSD, there's more than 512 gigabytes worth of storage inside there. They keep some in reserve. And when you wear out a portion of it, they will use some of the other, right? The more expensive an enterprise of the SSD, the more they are over-provisioned and the longer they will last. But I would suspect 
that in a consumer laptop being used by a consumer to do normal things, something else is going to die before you wear out that SSD most likely, unless you are doing some really weird stuff with lots of paging or lots of constant IO or constantly recording video, or I don't, I don't know what could cause that amount of IO, but in general, I think modern SSDs are probably going to put up with the amount of reads and writes that a normal person does. So I would not worry about having too little RAM causing lots of swapping, which in turn causes your SSD to wear out. Uh, Jan Philip writes, if I copy three files in three different simultaneous copy processes in the Finder, will the bits of the three files be written mixed on the hard drive as opposed to if I had run the copy process sequentially? Is there more order in the bits on my hard drive if I let one copy process finish before I start the next? I would like to know the answer to this question just out of curiosity. Let me tell you about defragmenting your hard drive. <laughs> well, and how with SSDs, that's, it becomes a much more complicated thing with like what you want it to be or and what it needs to be. Yeah. So, John, here again, this is your kind of part of the world. What, what's the situation? Back uh, in the day, uh, computers would address hard drives, like spinning hard drives, uh, fairly directly. If you think of what a spinning hard drive was like, it's a bunch of disks that spin and they're stacked on top of each other. And, and uh, on in between them are a bunch of read and write heads, right? It's like, think of like a, a, you know, seven record players or five record players stacked on top of each other with little heads reading them all. And the each of the disks had, uh, well, they had what you can imagine uh, like a track. They're not like they're not like a uh, a record where it's a spiral that starts in the middle and goes out to the edge. But instead, they had concentric circles like a tree ring, right? And one of those rings is a track, and a sort of pie wedge shape of the disk is a sector. And you could also address what's called a cylinder, which is a track through the entire stack. Right, so you can imagine the outermost track, the, the outermost cylinder is that track on all the disks that are down there. And in the very, very early days, computers would address hard drives by track and cylinder and sector, like more or less directly. Like the, the operating system had the ability to say, I want to write in the fifth sector of the outermost cylinder of these disks or whatever, right? And in those cases, like the language uh, Marco was talking about, in case you just mentioned the... Uh, the defragmenting thing where there was computer programs that would visualize, they would take all these, these cylinders and sort of stretch them out and connect them together. So it becomes one big long line. And then they would wrap that line into a rectangle shape. And they would say, this is your hard drive, all these, this rectangle. And every one of these pixels represents like a particular, you know, sector on a particular track or whatever, like not even that, but they would break it up into some even sized chunks. And they would rearrange your files so that all of the bits that belong to whatever, the operating system are all next to each other and all the bits that belong to this are next to each other. When they say next to each other, they meant like address-wise because they can address these hard drives more or less directly. And for example, bits that were all on the same track, one after the other, you could read those in a big line because the disc would spin and like a little record player, the little head would go over that that track and it would read as the track, you know, went underneath. It would read all those bits. And it's great if they're all on that same track because then you don't have to move the heads if for in, in, instead you had the first part of that file is on the outermost track then the second part is on the innermost track then the third part is on a middle track just to get those three little bits you'd have to go okay read from here now move the head wait for it to steady now read from here now move the head again and wait for it to steady it was way faster if they were all on the same track because you just move the head and then spin the thing around 360 degrees and get all the bits off of that track right that in theory 
was what defragmenting was doing for you because the disks were more or less directly addressable and the addresses were more or less sequential within each cylinder or whatever, and they would try to make the files contiguous so that the first bit of the file is right next to the second bit and third bit and fourth bit and fifth bit or whatever. And that's why they'd have these very pleasing displays of taking your disk where, oh, these files are scrambled everywhere. I'm going to make it all contiguous and I'm going to color code it so the operating system is one color and your, I don't know, audio files are another color. I don't even remember what defragging things did. But I did the same things with Norton Utilities back in the day on my Mac. Well, and, and there was there was a reason why defra- why they would put all the files next to each other. It wasn't just to make it look pretty, although that, that was, I think, a big reason why people liked watching it. But it was it was because if you put all the files near each other, or all the parts of a file near each other, the heads would have to spend less time going back and forth seeking across to different cylinders on the disk. And because back then, and well, still, hard drives, like, you know, spinning disk hard drives, if you need to move the head back and forth, it takes way longer than if you can read, like, sequentially off of one track or off of nearby tracks. The more you have to move the head back and forth, the slower it is by a lot. Because you'd have to move the head fairly quickly to get there, but then you have to wait for the head to settle because you wouldn't stop on a dime. It would like vibrate a little bit and you had to wait for it to settle down and then you could read again and then you'd start moving again. It was terrible, right? Uh, That whole paradigm started to fall apart way before SSDs came out because once you break the connection between the operating system and the physical device in terms of addressing, all bets are off. So in the early days, like I said, you could actually address physically the attributes of the hard drive. But eventually, you would say, hey, hard drive, write this into, you know, address, you know, cylinder one, sector five. And the hard drive would go, oh, yeah, sure, totally, I'll do that. And it would put those bits wherever the hell it wanted. Like the connection (laughs) between virtual addressing and physical addressing was broken by modern hard drives because they would add things like cache and they would allow the hard drive mechanism to make its own intelligent decisions about where to allocate stuff. And it was no longer address one is next to address two is next to address three is next to address four or whatever physical attributes where you could sort of control it and say, I'm going to put this on the outer track of the hard drive because that spins faster, right? And it'll be faster to read. And it would be like, oh, you can tell the hard drive that. But you can't actually make the hard drive do anything because the hard drive is now this complicated system, which is a little miniature computer with its own algorithms about head movement and its own uh, RAM cache and everything. And once that relationship was broken, trying to do any kind of defragmenting thing to get the bits next to each other wasn't guaranteed to do what you wanted. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. It was difficult to tell. SSDs, of course, don't have a head that's moving anywhere. And in SSDs, there's usually not any particular extra cost for reading something from one location or another. Now, it's not entirely true because they do read things in regions, and it you know the regions aren't the size of one byte. So if you're going to read a byte from here and a byte from there, there is additional overhead. But now more than ever, it is a sucker's game to try to arrange things physically in the storage through the operating system because the operating system is so far from the physical reality of the storage that it has no hope of controlling where things are. It, it, so that's, that game is entirely over. So getting back to the question, which is, hey, if I'm doing simultaneous copies, are the things spread out or are they together? There are so many different layers between your time sequencing of operations, like I'm doing all the files at once or I'm doing them in sequence. There is the various I.O. buffers in the operating system. There is caching all the way through the entire storage hierarchy and then there is the actual physical addressing of the individual chips in the ssd 
it's trying to control where things land by time sequencing is not going to work the way you think it's going to work. And even if it did work that way, the benefits on something like an SSD are minimal. That said, it it takes some amount of computing to do I.O. And if you do lots and lots of I.O. in parallel, you could, not in a finder copy, but you could in a very large, you know, a much bigger scenario, swamp the CPU by doing, say, 100,000 threads, each of which is trying to write a file at exactly the same time. And that could slow you down as opposed to doing those 100,000 files, either in sequence or more likely in batches that equal the number of CPU cores you have, right? So it's not like time sequencing of I.O. can't affect your performance. But when you're talking about three files in the finder, A, don't worry about it. And B, (laughs) there really is no control, even at the operating system level, of exactly where those bits land in your storage. That's the magic of a sort of a layered hierarchy, like there's a separation of concerns. Having the operating system know the physical attributes of your storage and control them directly is a worse system than what we have now. So just uh, let go and let storage handle it. (laughs) Trust the system. All right. And then finally, uh, Aiden Traeger writes, do you think Apple will ever ever offer iCloud backup for the Mac? It seems like another way for them to increase services revenue through iCloud storage upgrades. I understand the logic here, but no. Given how stingy they are with, although it's gotten better recently, how stingy they are with uh, iCloud storage space as it is, I personally do not see this happening. This is why uh, many time prior sponsor Backblaze exists. But that's just my two cents. Marco, what do you think? iCloud backup seems like an obvious thing to offer on the Mac. That being said, it's more complicated to offer on the Mac, you know, as people like Backblaze know, uh, because Mac data locations, Mac data volumes, uh, they're just different from iOS devices. The way, like, what would you back up? Like, iCloud backup on the phone is not just a 100% file system clone of your phone. It backs up like things that are marked as documents and data for certain apps and things like that, and like has different arrangements for how it backs up photos and whether it backs up things like music or how it backs them up. On the Mac, all of that is different. Like the way, where apps save data, how they save data, how they mark their data, it's all different. Um, whether they store it like in caches or in the library folder, or whether they store it in documents and on your file system and your home directory. Like there's there's so many different variations of where and how they store everything that in order to reasonably be sure that you have like all the important stuff on a Mac, you kind of have to back up everything, or at least almost everything, which is way more data volume than what iCloud Backup usually includes on your iOS devices. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is iCloud Backup is actually a pretty bad backup. <laughs> I know this because, like, so, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure every... Every parent out there, or even if you're not a parent, you've probably had a situation where you or someone in your family has accidentally caused some kind of data loss to happen on an iOS device, but like in one app. So we had an issue of like this recently where my kid was was editing some levels in a game that has like a level editor built in, and he accidentally deleted the wrong one on like the, the level list screen, and he, he accidentally deleted one that he didn't want to delete as he was deleting you know, other ones. And it crushed him. And he, he'd worked so hard on making this level and it was just gone. And there was no undo. And I'm like, I, I'm like, we might, 
if we if we can we can try to get this back i'm like if it was on here yesterday which was before your last icloud backup we can try to to restore this from yesterday's icloud backup and see if it's in there but what that will require to basically have time machine for one app from like five minutes ago or one day ago what that would require would be to capture a full computer-based backup of the ipad because a lot of stuff is not backed up to, to icloud backup like minecraft data so a lot so you still have to do like the full computer backup to even have a backup at all and the entire rest of the time that he's like using his ipad out in the world or whatever upstairs there's no backup of any of that stuff that's not an icloud backup unless like you know the the two or three times a year we remember to like do it to itunes or to finder now and then to actually do like a restore a like oh crap i messed something up in this app you have to blow away an entire ios device to restore all of iCloud's backup from the previous backup onto it. So you have to like first wipe it, then install an entire backup over it. So it's this massive, like destructive and incredibly time consuming process to even see if you can maybe get this information out. And at the end of the day, like we didn't even end up attempting it. We decided I'm like, I told him like, here's what, here's what it will take. Here's how long it will take. Do you want to do it? And he decided not to, because it was going to, it was going to be a while of having his iPad not be usable. But uh it just showed like if this was something on a mac i could just go to backblaze and like restore that one file which it would have backed up because it can do that because on the mac you can have third-party backup solutions that can read the entire disk or read special things however you want them to and they can do things that apple doesn't do like offer point in time uh, backup recovery of like only certain files or save version histories of things and I just I don't see Apple doing any of that stuff. I, that that stuff kind of looks messy to Apple. That's not the style that they operate their services in. Their services tend to be like, what is like the the seventy five percent solution that we can offer that will solve basic needs in a basic way, pretty reliably. Like that's what they do. And so if they did offer iCloud backup for the Mac, I think what we would want it to be in theory would be like cloud-based time machine basically that i think is what we'd want it to be yep but i don't think it would actually be that i think it's too i think that's too much data and too much functionality for the way apple would actually design and ship such a service if they ever would so i think really not only would they probably not do that because of the aforementioned like complexity of offering that on the mac but also icloud backup sucks if you have other options like if I could have Backblaze on my phone instead, I would because it would be so much better. And for all of our devices, like for, you know, for all of his Minecraft levels and everything, that would be so much better. Part of the reason that I play my games on a PC now is that I, I run Backblaze on the PC so I can back up my, my game data because <laughs> I can't do that on, on an iPad or something. Um, so I think it, logically it makes sense hey they should offer iCloud backup for the Mac but once you start thinking about what that would entail and what that would actually be I'm not sure it's it's a very compelling al- uh, alternative what do you think John I think they should offer this backup in fact Apple did offer uh, backups as part of iTools I think do you remember the backup icon that was an orange umbrella I do not know that was before our time I think it was an Apple app that was creatively named Backup, I believe, and it would back up your computer or files on your computer to the cloud, I think even before cloud had a name. But anyway, it was terrible. 
uh, and it went away and it was just as well. But ever since they rolled out iCloud backups for iOS devices, I've thought, okay, well, you should bring that to the Mac because it shows that that's a thing that you have an appetite for doing. It is a thing that all users need, that all users do need cloud backup. And especially in the new era of services going up like a rocket at every earnings report, hey, this is another service you can sell. Um, now, I know it's like, well, who cares about the Mac? We do sell it. It's called the iCloud storage, and we charge through the nose for it, and nobody buys it on their iOS devices because they're cheap. Uh, so it's not really a successful <laughs> a big services success story. Uh, and the Mac is a much smaller market, so maybe no one cares. But Apple totally should offer iCloud backup for the Mac. Um, now, as to why Apple is going to be bad at it when they do, <laughs> setting aside history and all the things that Marco noted about how the way the iCloud stuff works for iOS devices, is that to do cloud-based backup well, not just well from a technical perspective, but well from a financial perspective, like to make it make that sweet services revenue with those sweet services margins – you really need to do what Backblaze does and actually do the storage yourself. Because if Apple is just reselling S3 storage from AWS to us, AWS gets a cut. Like that profit margin that you're paying to AD for AWS for S3, that's money that could be part of your margins, Apple, if you did what Backblaze does, which is run your own storage. Then you don't have to pay another company a slice of the profit for the storage. But it also means that you have to figure out, hey, how do you run storage at, at Apple scale? I mean, Backblaze uh, does amazing things with storage, but they don't have as many customers as Apple has. To do storage at Apple scale, you need something like Azure, Google Cloud, or AWS. But all of those companies will want to take a share of the profit. So if Apple ever does iCloud backup for the Mac, if they don't roll their own storage, it's going to be more expensive than Backblaze, not just because they're Apple, but because some cloud provider will be taking a portion of money for every single byte that's stored. Um, it, you know, I, I, it, I always do wonder how Apple can afford to do whatever they're doing for uh, iCloud Photo Library because I don't think they're running their own storage from that. So iCloud Photo Library is basically a wad of Apple software in front of S3 or something similar. Do you, do you think Apple has trouble affording anything? <laughs> I mean, but the whole point of the services stuff is you want it to be profitable because it's, you know, like you, you, the more people you sign up, every new person you get, that's more profit. It's, it's, a, it's a good business to be in. That's why services revenue is going up. It's not quite as profitable as making TV shows, but, you know, because like when you make the show once and lots of people watch it, every person who stores a byte, you have to pay for that byte. But if you could economically run your own storage, you could come within a, the ballpark of uh, Backblaze's pricing, which is fairly amazing in the grand scheme of things. Like, And so I think Apple should do this. I think when they do it, it's going to be too expensive. And I think it's going to be too expensive because Apple uh, doesn't want to do its own storage. And again, you could say that's wise. It's like, well, what do you want Apple to do? Become like AWS and Azure and Google Cloud? And my answer is a much longer answer, which is yes, they totally should do that because if they don't, they're constantly going to be paying money to those people. But thus far, it doesn't seem like Apple wants to do that. So I'm ready for the mediocre uh, Mac-based iCloud backup solution from Apple because a mediocre one is better than none. But a good one would be great. <laughs> Had a Backblaze not sponsor this episode. <laughs> they didn't need to. <laughs> Apparently not. Well, thanks to the ones who did. Uh, Linode, Away, and Flatfile. And thank you to our members who support us directly. You can join as well at atp.fm slash join. And we will talk to you next week. <laughs> 
Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C A S E Y L I S S. So that's Casey Liss, M A R C O A R M E N T, Marco Armin, S I R A C U S A Syracuse. It's accidental. I'm snowed in. Did I tell you that? The bay, the bay is frozen, right? You can't take your ferry out. That's right. We have we are officially uh, stuck here for uh, probably another couple days. It, it it will be in total end up being probably about a week because uh, there's no more there's no ferry service. So we are snowed in. We are eating our way through the freezer. Well, you, in worst case scenario, you could always walk through the a hole fence over the causeway over the bridges. Like you're not actually stuck, right? You know, I mean, you. So if we were to get a driving permit ever, you know, to, to in order to drive across the sand to go over to that one bridge, uh, we could do that. But there's also a lot of people who have those permits who we know, and so like you know, if we were if we really need stuff, we could just ask people we know. Hey, can you give us a ride to Costco or whatever, and they would do it. Um, but I don't like. I don't like to uh, ask for favors that I don't need. So people people want to know what the a hole fence is. You actually don't need to cross the a hole fence to go off the island. The a hole fence is the, the other direction. Oh, all right. But is it's it? it's the um, the point of woods fence. You have to be a bit of an a hole in order to to build an entire fence across an island to block people from accessing an entire section of the island. If, for for an island based so much on like walking and biking and everything to block off your entire town from anybody walking and biking into it is, is kind of a, a jerk move. So so one of my jobs when it comes to ATP is I take a first crack at the show notes. And on a good week, Marco won't find very much to change, and sometimes he finds a lot that needs changing. But nevertheless, I was you know, Googling um, the .00 woods in order to put it in the show notes, and I found fireisland.com slash town slash point hyphen o hyphen woods hyphen fire hyphen island that'll be in the show notes. And I will read to you a small excerpt from this. Well-pedigreed families came from all corners <laughs> of the country to summer at Point O Woods. While many neighboring Fire Island communities are predominantly populated by New York City and greater Long Island summer residents, Point O Wood residents cherish their land and water sports almost as much as they value family continuity and their way of life and, of course, their privacy. Wow, what a bunch of jerks. I mean, it is it is what it says on the tin. <laughs> yeah, it's it's certainly not known for its diversity. <laughs> they don't just let in rich people. You have to be the right kind of rich people. Yeah. Oh yeah, you do. That's that it's that's a real thing. Like it's it's as bad as you think it is. <laughs> well, don't worry. Their houses will wash away just as easily as yours when the big storm comes. <laughs> I don't know if that's comforting to you. No, it's not. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, Pointo Woods is not called Lonelyville, which apparently is another community on Fire Island. Yes, Lonelyville is a real place. It, it, it's probably the best named place on Fire Island. <laughs> I will say there, there was, um, you know, Fire Island has a lot of communities, some of which are extremely liberal, old hippie liberal, um, also some some very gay communities. 
And this past summer, I got a pair of electric sand bikes and I took a few rides just, you know, just to travel to see different communities that are that were further away that I'd never seen before. I took a couple of rides with, with my neighbor and I don't have any issues seeing naked people. It's the human body. It's fine. And if people want to celebrate their body, that's fine. Oh, no. I was, I did find it pretty awkward to watch two naked men playing badminton. <laughs> Interesting. There's a lot of jumping in badminton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my uh, Fire Island. Well, not Fire Island specifically. Robert Moses, off of Robert Moses, not far down from Robert Moses, which is a public beach. Uh, you can very quickly find many nude beaches. And I remember that from my childhood, too. And it's, yeah. Yeah, because I decided our very first ship, I'm like, you know what? Let's see if we can ride to the lighthouse, which is the end of the, it's just like right next to Robert Moses. You'll have to go through there. Yep. You pass a whole lot of that. And at first, I think, you know, you see one out of the corner of your eye, you're like, oh, I think that person's naked. And then you start seeing, oh, everyone's naked. And then and then you feel weird being the person on the bike who's like riding through, like, I shouldn't be here. I, I feel, I feel like I'm like, I don't want to be like a tourist in the naked place. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to like make anyone else feel uncomfortable. Just keep your eyes down and keep walking. Yeah. Or biking. Yeah, but the badman, that's that's something I think everybody either should ever see or should see once. <laughs> it doesn't even sound comfortable, you know what I mean? No, it's the thing. Like I I I mean, good for them. You know, that's I'm mm-hmm. I'm happy for them that, that they're that they're willing, willing to do right, that. But I feel like I feel like sometimes you need a little support. Yeah, it just I would I I would never choose a sport that involved so much jumping to do as <laughs> as as a naked man. For for men and women. Men and women both sometimes need a little support when you're jumping. Anyway, good thing we're talking about this for some reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're not out there in the winter, though. No, we. It, th- this is not a very populous place in the winter. It's too bad it wasn't. Hasn't been that cold. You get to the point where the bay freezes, and you can just walk across it. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's it's not, and it's not at that point now. And we we had to have the talk with Adam, like, hey, never <laughs> try to walk on the frozen bay because you could fall through and die. Like that's that was a fun talk to have, but. Um, we, uh, I don't know. Did I ever mention that I have uh, that I bring Adam to school on an e-bike that looks kind of like an, uh, a yellow school bus version of an e-bike? No, I thought he was taking the sand bus. No. So here's the thing: there is bus service to bring him to the school from here. Uh, however, they were saying earlier, like it, at the end of the summer when they were registering all the students, they were saying like because so many more students are here this year because of the virus. And because on the bus, they had to have distancing available on the bus. So they couldn't run the bus at the full capacity. They, had, they can only have like, you know, one kid per seat or every two seats or something like that so that the kids are spaced out enough. They said that if like any more kids register for the school bus, they would have to go to like a two cohort system of schooling of like, you, you know, you only go on like A days or B days and the rest of the time you're remote because the buses were going to be too full. Huh. And so we said, all right, well, we don't need the bus. We live within... We live about, I think about a, maybe three quarters of a mile to a mile away, something like that. So we said, look, we can just take bikes and walk sometimes and it's fine. And that worked out great until, you know, winter happened. Uh, and then, you know, we have situations where like it would be somewhat unsafe for us to ride our like two regular bikes across this like slushy, icy <laughs> mile. <laughs> so a- anticipating this and, and, you know, bad weather days, I got, um, there we go, yeah, it's the Rise R-I-Z-E Blade. This bike is, it's an electric sand bike, so it has the fat tires. Fat tires also work on snow and, to some degree, ice. 
And so I wanted a way that I could drive Adam to school, basically, uh, in bad weather or in, in, you know, cold or snowy conditions that he could ride on the back because they don't they don't make electric sand bikes small enough for Adam to drive himself. Believe me, I've looked. But uh, they do make this kind of like scrambler style electric sand bike that has a long banana style seat so that you can have a passenger sitting behind you it, and it has foot pegs and put their feet on and everything so it's it's designed to have a passenger that's somebody relatively small like a child so i got this thing and i got it in yellow because it is basically our school bus and yellow oh is the only gosh. color that was in stock at the end of the summer <laughs> but that's, <laughs> that's different reasons but so so on bad weather days i drive adam to school on this and we call it the bus even though it is an electric sand bike. And it works great. And today was perfect for it uh, because today, the aforementioned you know snowstorm, we had to ride through like six inches of flooded slush water and part of the ride. Uh, and then, you know, the rest of the ride was pretty icy and, you know, snowy in, in the morning. Rode this thing through it just fine. Not, it's not the first time we've done it. It works fantastically. And uh, so, yeah, this it, it, we kind of have our own like fun, you know, school adventure this year. Like, you know, we're, we're going to school at the beach full time <laughs> and because we can't have a car we don't have the right kind of permit and probably won't be able to get one for many years i have this weird electric sand bike that i drive my kid to school on sometimes car wouldn't help you anyway because you don't have roads that go up to your house where would you put your car no the the walks like the, the big sidewalks that act as roads mm-hmm. are wide enough for one car to just barely fit down them mm-hmm. so <laughs> some of the year-round residents do have most of them actually have cars but you like you aren't allowed to keep the cars here in the summer because there's too many people around but in the winter if you have one of the special permits you can keep a car as long as you have somewhere on your property that you can park it anyway so Someday we might get a permit, but that hasn't happened yet, and we don't know when or if it will ever happen. So, in the meantime, I got this. Now, what people usually will do instead, uh, rather than electric sand bikes, most of the people solve this problem by buying a golf cart, which we could do. You don't need any special permits for that. We could do that as long as we use it in the winter and not the summer. Uh, But golf carts are very big and not that cheap and not that easy to get, and I don't really like them that much. Like... A, an e-bike is so much more fun. Like there were, there were a few times when in the fall there were some really rainy days, and we had some contractors doing some stuff in the house. And one time they offered, like, if I just wanted to borrow their golf cart to drive Adam to school in, in the heavy rain, and I said sure because it had like, it had like the, the roof and little side zip things. And I, you know, I took that to school and I had to keep like pulling over to the side to like let other golf carts pass, and you know, it, it was a big pain to have such a large vehicle. Whereas this thing, this this wonderful little e-bike. You just kind of zip around everybody and it's great it like you can fit anywhere you can you can pull over really easily you can you can ride up on the side of you know the little berm if you need to it takes no space to park it it stores under the house easily it's wonderful i'm very happy with this thing i love the world of electric bikes i think it's wonderful and i think it's temporary before they get classified as motor vehicles by most states and you know become much more hard to, to legally use but in the, in the in the current time of them being this kind of weird in-between thing that regulators are mostly ignoring or it's going under their radar they're just wonderful they're they're delightful to ride it is not at all like riding a bike and if what you want to do is exercise with a bike this is not for you at all and this particular one is a terrible bike to try to pedal manually like because the the seat is so wide you you, like you kind of have to have your knees like pointed outwards as opposed to straight down you know it's 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 a terrible bike to pedal manually and they're really heavy 
if you just kind of treat the pedals as a like technicality and just use the thumb throttle, it's wonderful. And uh, yeah, so most people don't need something like this, but if you do, this is quite a fun thing. <laughs> that sounds like pretty much everything you ever buy. I like that. It's, it's got all these gears, but it's like, <laughs> do, do you really need all this mechanical advantage if the electric motor is doing it for you? Yeah, I, I, I again, I've tried pedaling this, and I, so I, and I have a different kind of e-bike because I, I mentioned I, I have two. I have a different kind for the sand, a, a nice little uh, Saunders one. That is like a more traditional style seat and everything. So like, you can pedal that one manually. It's heavy, and when I ride that on the beach, I usually set the assist level down a little bit and I pedal along with it. So that way I'm getting some exercise, but I'm able to use the assist resistance level to control how much exercise I'm needing to put into it. So like if I'm going through a really tough section, I can amp it up a little bit. Um, or if, if I want a more of a workout, I can turn it down a little bit. This thing though, the, the rise blade with the big banana seat, you can't, you basically can't pedal it manually. Like it's, it's so hard to do. It's so awkward. It's not at all made for that. Uh, but if you need just something that is small, inexpensive, and you know street legal almost any, almost everywhere, including here, uh, then that's it's pretty great for that. 